What radio, the music you want. With your host, he's Dan. I think with your IQ, you're unarmed and still very dangerous. RadioWhat.com Okay, let's do it. What's up, party people? It's Keys Dan with RadioWhat.com, DJLittleRock.com, coming to you live and in living color from the Radio What Studios, and this is my podcast, What Makes You Famous. It's an extension of the RadioWhat.com internet radio station that I've been running for quite some time, and if you need DJ services, where do you go? DJLittleRock.com. Check availability and get a free price quote, and maybe you can have me at your next event. I like to play for the people. I like to play for the people. Why did I say that twice? I don't know. Today on the program, Don Abernathy, the D-Train. You get to know more about the D-Train. He's a podcaster, you know, and I want to know more. And you're going to have two podcasters talking to each other, two people that like to to talk on microphones, talking to each other. Yeah. That should be a lot of fun. (laughs) So stick around for that. This week's shows, my two public shows this week. Let's see. It's Wednesday as I record this. So tomorrow night, Thursday night, I'll be at the Old Post Barbecue in Russellville, Arkansas. That's my video dance party karaoke jam, the family-friendly edition. Uh, They got great barbecue, great atmosphere. Just get to Russellville, Arkansas, and come to the Old Post from 6 until 9. It's a good after-school treat and fun for the whole family. I always play some family-friendly music uh, while we're waiting for singers to sing. And you're the stars of the show. It's karaoke night. And if, you, uh, if you're if you over 21, yeah, they got adult beverages for you. The frosty variety. So uh, fill your glasses and uh, have some drinks. But, you know, I keep it family-friendly music-wise. Yeah, bring everybody after school, after work. It's the Old Post Barbecue Thursday night from six to nine and then on friday night i'll be at the rab in conway arkansas that's my regular friday night gig you know most friday nights you're gonna find me at the rab in conway arkansas i'm easy to find you're the stars of the show because it's the video dance party karaoke jam we got a dance floor just bright and filled up it's a club it's a club, baby. This one is over 21. They got the full bar, the kitchen, pool tables. In fact, they have a pool tournament on Friday nights at the Rab. If you want to get involved with that, talk to Mark, talk to Debbie, and maybe you can make some money playing pool on a Friday night at the Rab, your favorite place to be. On the party patio, they got shuffleboard, foosball, darts, a giant Jenga game giant checkers there's always something to do while you're waiting to sing your song (laughs) and be the star at the rab in conway arkansas that's from 8 p.m until well almost two in the am you know way past my bedtime come on out and play with us the rab friday night and then on saturday night i got a private show so you're not invited (laughs) i like to party with the people as i've said before all right party people Without further ado, let's get into it with Don Abernathy, the D-Train, calling Don Abernathy now.
Hello. Don Abernathy, please. This is him. The D-Train himself? This is him. Fantastic. It's obviously Keys Dan from the What Makes You Famous podcast. D-Train, which is what I will call you from here on on the podcast because I love it. Love that name. You are a man of many talents, and one of the many talents is talking into a microphone. You do it a lot. Tell the people a little bit more about you, D-Train. Well, uh, as you said, my name is Don Abernathy. I was uh, born in 1978 in the uh, somewhat rejected city of Covington, Kentucky. I say that because people in Kentucky doesn't, don't want Covington, and Ohio doesn't want it either. <laughs> Covington is the uh, beautiful city on the other side of the Ohio River from Cincinnati, but it is, in fact, a uh, part of Kentucky, and that's where I was born. I grew up in the hills of Kentucky until about second grade, until which point uh, my parents moved me to Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up. Didn't lose the accent. Hung out there for a while, then moved out to California until about 2004, to where I relocated to Florida and have been here ever since. Man, you know, I've been listening to you all day long in my ears and you're I apologize for that. No, 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 not a, not even a little bit. I, I know you have several podcasts and and the one that I, I've been listening to the most of of course is the the water well, I, I say of course, uh, but it's the Waterman and D Train show. And this show, it's if you can think of a great morning show, it's a great morning show in your ears. It's a couple of guys just riffing off each other, telling stories, and it seems like your stories are endless. Uh, you know, you, you've had a past where you've moved around a little bit, started in Kentucky. Well, may, maybe Ohio, maybe Kentucky. Uh, is that is that what I'm saying? Is that what I'm hearing? It sounds like Texarkana uh, on the southern part of Arkansas, which is where I'm at right now, uh, where I don't know if it's Texas. I don't know if it's Arkansas. It's one of those border towns. So well, for any of your listeners who ever flown into Cincinnati, Ohio, to the uh, Cincinnati airport, yeah. uh, you'll be to find that the Cincinnati airport does not reside in Cincinnati. It resides in Erlanger, Kentucky, which is about 20 minutes south of Covington because, well, there's no room in Cincinnati for the Cincinnati airport. And my whole family, we are basically from northern Kentucky. Um, if anybody's ever drove through northern Kentucky on Interstate 71, that's where the nice water tower that says Florence Yaw is located. And so, uh, no, I grew up in northern Kentucky. My dad moved to Ohio to Columbus to find work. Because at the time, before Amazon existed, there was very little work in northern Kentucky. Right. What did he end up doing? Uh, my father was a, you know, he was an electrician by trade early on. He actually moved up to Columbus and got a job on the assembly line. Well, I can't even say assembly line. The uh, production line of Calcan dog food. Okay. I'm, I'm familiar with Calcan. I've had puppies over yeah, the Master years. Food. Yeah, Master Food owns Calcan. But he wasn't satisfied with uh, doing that, and so he went back to school. He grinded. And he retired from Master Foods in California as an electrical engineer. So he basically went back to school. He found anytime there was a promotion opportunity at Master Foods, he would find out what the requirements were, and he would go to school and and basically work his way up the line. What, what kind of work do you get as an electrical engineer, or what kind of work did your father get in particular, if you know? Basically, he was in charge of, after a while, maintaining the machines that actually uh, can the dog foods, or um, for those who have cats who uh, may have fed your cat Sheba and the soft pouches, he was basically in charge of uh, maintaining those machines 
which is hard to do in a place that doesn't want to shut down. He often tells people it's kind of like a mechanic whose job it is to fix your car while traveling 75 mile an hour down the freeway. And I think I'm in tune with that. I think I'm in tune with that because this this is a, a a major production, a place that that wants to keep the the food preparation going, the the pet food uh, in particular. But uh, yeah, I could see that where he he would have to fix machines as they were going. Uh, my stepdad works for American, but he works on the um, on the conveyor belts, and they are very similar to where they don't want those conveyor belts going down ever. So you have to fix sure, them on I'm, the fly. And I'm sure you've probably heard the phrase lockout tagout, which is the safety procedure required in industrial applications when working on machines. And as his business and his life progressed, he would travel. They sent him to France, Europe, Germany, all throughout. And by the time he was retiring, he was basically helping to come up with the um, safety procedures and the design implements of creating the new machines that were designed to create a new line of book foods, cat foods, and even... Uh, M&M's and other candies before his end of his career. So were these, I guess these machines were designed to replace humans? Uh, not so much. They okay. were basically, for example, your, your dog food that comes in a can or soups or spam or anything for that matter, people don't realize the reason that your food is preserved in that can for a long period of time up until the point you open it is the food is actually cooked inside the can. It's heated up so that it gets all the oxygen out. And that's what allows the food to last so long in the can. But once you open the can, as you know, you're not supposed to keep it open in the refrigerator because it'll start producing rust. You're supposed to, you know, put it in another container. And so he would help design machines like that and help keep them running. Because as you said, when you got a company that large and has that many people on payroll, um, every hour is money. And so when you do have to turn machines down, it's got to be planned. Um, it's got to be, you know, minimum amount of time. And so he would work a lot of late hours. Man. I didn't know I was going to be learning about the canning, uh, the canning process. This is fantastic, well, you man. Know, well, you know, interestingly enough, it's his line of work that kind of got me into what I'm doing nowadays because I didn't realize what Damn. I was doing in middle school was called production. Um, one of the jobs he got tasked with was to create training videos for his branch. And so one day I discovered in my basement there's all this mock machinery up there's lighting fixtures, a brand new, I know listening to their last episode with uh, Pyro, the um, the hip-hop artist, yeah. you guys are about the same age I am, you're a little bit older than I am, but he he got this beautiful state-of-the-art RCA camcorder, you know the old ones, you, you put the VHS tape right in it? Oh, yeah. The ones you mount on your shoulder? Well, he had all that stuff set up in his basement, he was recording uh, training videos, and then when that was done, we had all this equipment sending around. And my brother and I were heavily into skateboarding at the time. And obviously, we didn't, cell phones didn't exist, um, small cameras didn't exist, but we had this big ass camera with a handle on it. And so we'd start skateboarding down the street, holding it at waist high and getting all these different camera angles. <laughs> and we had two VCRs, and I would basically use two different VCRs, no mixing boards, nothing, and just manually record my own skateboard videos, <laughs> which was long and tedious. And my brother, who's also on the Waterman D train show, he's our uh, Las Vegas uh, news anchorman. Yep. He told me that our Zenith VCR had this cool feature called a record audio. And it actually had audio inputs on it. And I had a little boombox of a CD player that had audio output. And so after I would edit this video by hand, which I ended up calling the video play because every time I'd hit play on VCR one, I didn't know how to turn off the little thing that said play in the top right-hand corner. Uh -huh. And so as you're watching the final product, every few seconds, the word play would show up. 
But after I would edit the video, I would then take my boombox, plug it in the back, and record music over top of it. So it was like a very rudimentary version of the skateboard videos we'd get out at skateboard shops. Okay, we're speaking to Don Abernathy, the D-Train, the inventor of GoPro. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Because, come on, you were doing that way before GoPro was yeah, around. If I had that GoPro money, I wouldn't be uh, recording three podcasts out of the spare bedroom of my house. Yeah, you got that right. Uh, here I am in the Radio What Studios. It, it happens to be my bedroom, dear listeners. <laughs> uh, at least for tonight. <laughs> And so to fast forward a few years, um, you know, I, I, me and my brother and my, my buddy, Nick, we probably spent four or five years from middle school all the way up through high school making this video. And then after high school, I became a bass player in a band called Snowblind. They're still around in Columbus. Yeah. And I would record parties at around the house and I would add it to the end of that video. Well, sadly, I made the mistake of recording my lead singer's brother drunk off his ass, oh. puking and all that. And so he got embarrassed of that. In this video that I spent five, six years editing, basically making a timeline of my skateboard history from middle school up to high school, he decided to destroy to get rid of the evidence of him drunk. No. And so all those years, you know, yeah, he erased an embarrassment, tw embarrassing 20 minutes of his life, but he also erased six years of mine and six years of hard work. And so, it, you know, now at 41, I really wish I had access to that videotape. Because, you know, I mean, who else would have a video? Well, everybody nowadays. Yeah. But people in their 40s and... 50s who else would have a that long of an extravagant documentation of their you know their childhood d-train you sadly answered my next question where can i see this video and sadly i cannot see this video uh, no and even if you could you know with with the quality of cameras nowadays that old you know 400 lines of resolution transferred into a digital copy it would just be so horrible that no one, no one would be interested in watching it anyhow hey it's nostalgia baby you know you're you're 41 i'm 50 so you know we've eaten the same dirt I, i'm from miami i was born and raised in in miami in the florida keys but i've i've spent some time in in central florida where you're at right now i've dj'd a lot, some weddings in, in on the coast uh, on the uh, yep, uh, on the water there so i mean just uh, you know tell me tell me what life is like all right you grew up in in the the northern kentucky ohio area but what took your what took you to your travels to, uh, to take me through your travels to central florida let's go there well one of the um you know, as somebody, not to get too far into the weeds, but I know we got some time here. And, um, Man, I, I don't put a time limit on these things. Well, that's the best thing about podcasts. You don't have a program director beating you over the head saying, come on, we got to roll calls and get to the next song. I don't <laughs> miss terrestrial radio all that much because of that. Well, I, did, I worked in terrestrial radio for five and a half years. We'll get into that later. So oh, you yeah. and I can relate on a lot of things on that. But uh, to back up a little bit. Um, Please. I was. I was born or maybe developed after being attacked by a Malamute and having 64 staples in my head. Um, I acquired a learning disability. Oh. And so from second grade all the way up through high school, um, my reading was horrible. I think my senior year, I was probably reading at a, I don't know, sixth grade level. Interestingly enough, I graduated high school and uh, my senior year, I took college prep history, which will come into, um, into play here with one of my podcasts. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, everybody hears about, the exams nowadays, well, back in 97, when I graduated, Ohio had the Ohio proficiency test. And in order to graduate, you had to pass the freshman proficiency test. Well, because of my learning disability, I didn't have to take math or um, science. 
uh, my braille, no, math or reading. Um, but I was in LD classes for science, um, reading and math. Now, my fiance nowadays, she is a uh, fourth grade teacher and they have all kinds of great, you know, things in play for kids with learning disabilities. They don't refer to them as learning disabilities. Now they got all these cute acronyms. But back in the 80s and 90s, they were honest with us. They said, hey, you're an LD class. Mm-hmm. which me and my cynical friend said, yeah, LD for literally dumb. And because it was such a new thing, they didn't have these nice big classrooms for kids with learning disabilities. They would find an old storage unit somewhere or an old, you know, an old uh, broom closet, and they would get a semi-retired teacher and put the four or five of you in there. And they say, okay, you're an LD. You know, you have your LD math for this period. And then at this period, you go into what they would call the mainstream classes. So that'd make you feel real great about yourself. Hey, I'm not in mainstream for these classes because I'm too dumb. And so clearly I just, I graduated high school, never went to college. Um, being in an LD class, they would take you to places to see what sort of rudimentary skills that you might have to um, try to make a living after you graduated. Right. They'd take you to these places and have you do, okay, this person would be good, um, you know, working in a warehouse, assembling widgets or this, that, and the other thing. But um, that really didn't do much for me. I, and so my senior year of high school, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. No trade um, schools in your future, at least? Nothing? No, no trade schools, nothing. Like I said, right after high school, I got into a rock band, did that for three and a half years. Right. But um, I played a decent bass. I refer to myself as a copy machine. You show me what to play, I can play it. I can keep time. I have an ear for music, but I can't pick up a bass and just jam out with people and my dad's trying to get me to go to his band practices i'm like dude i can't just sit down and play i'm not that good of a bass player oh but um one of the things almost like a survival skill other than the ability to be quick-witted because obviously back then when you have a learning disability and the kids in the mainstream they would as you know back then people kids made fun of everybody for everything back then oh yeah i was the fat kid so i had to be funny you know i understand that i'm in tune with that that emotion well, and the interesting thing is kids will make fun of kids for anything. So you got made fun of for being fat kid. I got made fun of for being the, the ultra super skinny kid. Okay. I was so metabolism was so fast as a child that my dad took me to the doctor as a kid because he thought I was malnourished. And just, the doctor's like, no, he's just got a super fast metabolism. And so, I mean, I was skin and bones. You know, I, hey, your father must be a pirate. He left you a sunken chest. You know, you take your shirt off in gym class and all that stuff. And so, as you said, when, when kids make fun of you, you either have two options. You can curl up and cry, right? or you can develop a thick skin and a quick wit and uh, the ability to uh, fight back verbally, which comes great into the line of work that we do now. That is correct. But one of the other survival skills that I picked up on is I picked up on the ability to recognize opportunity when it came. And um, over the last five years, I've kind of weeded the phrase luck out of my vocabulary because I don't believe in luck. No, um, the only people I, I think I you can make your own luck. Life. Yeah, but I think when, well, when you, I whatever you call luck, it, whatever you call it, you make your own destiny. You make your own. Well, sure, and and that comes with the um, the ability to recognize the opportunity and, and to take advantage of that. Right. In my mind, the people who are only lucky in life are people who win the lottery because that's pure luck, <laughs> or people who were born into the sperm lottery where they're the child of a multimillionaire. Other than that, anybody who's successful in their life. I don't feel they were lucky that I feel that they saw opportunity and need a plan for the future or they figured out a way to uh, take advantage of opportunity when it presents itself. Because I think everybody in their life 
opportunity presents itself, but not everybody has the ability or the fine-tuned eye to see that opportunity when it comes and to take advantage of it. That is correct. And so shortly after high school, I got married at 21. Um, my father-in-law, he actually he painted ambulances for a living in Grove City, Ohio. Okay. And so he got me a gig. I actually built ambulances for three years. I won't bore the audience with that. Hey, I was a firefighter for 10 years down in Key Largo. I, I can appreciate ambulance building, the ways that fire trucks and ambulances are built. Uh, take me into well, a little bit of that. I don't know if you ever looked at the badges on them, but I actually worked for Horton. Horton was one of the leading ambulances for the longest time. Nope, I but had I, an I worked- E1 and, and LaFrance were the, the two that I, I really drove a lot down there. Well, um, because my father's electrical background, it kind of runs in the blood. And one of the things I did in high school, um, I took eight semesters of woodshop. But by the time my senior year rolled by, my teacher allowed me to do whatever I want. So while the freshmen through juniors and some of the seniors were doing the boring woodshop stuff that I had done so many times, my teachers allowed me to install car stereos, amplifiers, and subwoofers in my friend's cars. Yeah. And because I knew the electrical side. And so fast forward, when I got the job at Horton, I was installing the electrical systems in ambulance. And there, and in ambulances, there definitely is a lot of electrical. And, and you have to have several batteries in in conjunction with each other. I don't know. I don't remember whether they're parallel or series or a combination of the two. Well, basically, you'd have the um, you'd have the battery under the hood, like all cars. And then what we'd actually do is take two ground straps and uh, run the ground strap from the main box to the chassis or the frame, if you will, from the OEM. And then, depending on if it's an international or F series or an E series, depending on the size of the ambulance, you would have what's called a battery tray, and it would either have a chain of two up to four more batteries in that one battery tray. So depending on the size of the ambulance, you could have anywhere between three to six batteries. This is because of the overhead lights, the sirens, the extra strain on your electrical system. uh, That's other than the the actual starter itself, correct? Yeah, not only that, but uh, because of the equipment that plugs into it, every ambulance had an inverter in it, which would invert the power from the 12-volt power that everybody knows that doesn't cause any uh, shock that would kill you into uh, either 110 or 220, depending on the... uh, type of equipment in that ambulance and so primarily because of the inverter and all the lights and the strobe packs that's why you'd have to have so many batteries plus all the life saving devices and sadly one of the two two cool technologies this is back in 99 2000 uh one we had the push button automatic tinted windows um they still have these windows they're they're probably not expensive that as they used to be but basically it's two pane pieces of glass with um a chemical compound in it and once you apply a 12 volt signal to it that glass would just turn completely blank white as if somebody painted it and so if somebody was in the ambulance that was in a bad way or maybe a celebrity or you need a privacy you just hit the button and that window that was pretty much 99 percent clear was now solid white which i always thought that would be a cool technology to have on limousines i don't know why people didn't ever pick that up that's some james bond stuff right there and I do notice going down the street, whenever an ambulance does have the chance to pass, most of the time you can see right in. And I do think yeah. that that probably affects uh, HIPAA laws and privacy uh, statutes of some kind. I always wondered about that. And you had this glass that was opaque at a touch of a button. That, yep. That, but I'm sure, it, I'm sure it increased the price point greatly. I and suspect you're right. The other sad technology, and it's nothing big now. I mean, you can get an Escalade with it or even a Suburban nowadays. But back then, 
um, particularly the New York trucks and the Boston trucks, we would have to put keypad um, blocks on them because what would happen is in New York, paramedic pulls up in front of a uh, building, runs inside to help the victim. All the tweakers would come, invade the ambulances, and steal all the medicine and needles. And so what they would have to do is, obviously, you can't have a paramedic fumbling with keys. And so we'd put push buttons so they can come in, type the code, unlock the ambulance so they can get in and go about their day. But if we didn't actually put those buttons on there, you know, junkies would come and clear out the ambulances while the paramedics were trying to help people out. Yeah, I think mom had a cougar with a uh, with a keypad on it to, to for easy access. So, uh, you know, and, I suspect that that's similar to what you were setting up on these ambulances, right? Sure. And so, and, you know, at the time, you know, we didn't have streaming audio. We didn't, Pandora didn't exist. We were all, you know, stealing music on, um, you know, LimeWire and BearShare at the time. But, you know, while we were working in the ambulances all day, now this isn't like an assembly line plant like Ford or Chevy. This is more like I tell people like West Coast choppers, you know, um, <laughs> We would pick up a chassis from the Ford plant or Chevy or International, and guy in the back would weld together a box. Our wiring harnesses were built by hand. They'd pull it into a spot, and you'd have a crew of five basically build everything from the ground up, just like all these car customization shows you see on Velocity Channel. So no and mass so production here on this. Is This is no. a lot of handwork here. Yeah, mandatory uh, 12 hours a day plus five hours on Saturday. If you clocked in a minute late, you got a point, and if you clocked out minute late or early you got a point 21 points you're out the door so it was very strict at the time and so i was listening to a lot of talk radio i was listening to howard stern opie and anthony and it's so funny i would sit there and say man i can do that guy's job gary the producer i can do that job or you know so and so anybody anybody can do all that stuff well i was working at horton on 9-11 and i actually watched the towers fall on the 14 inch black and white tv yes ladies and gentlemen that's how long ago it was the security guard still had a black and white TV at his stand. And um, right around that time, I had gotten a divorce. I was out partying, getting points, racking points up. Long story short, ended up losing my gig at, at the uh, ambulance plant because I was 21 years old, going, or 22 years old, going through divorce, out drinking, oversleeping, and, and not getting to work on time. Oh. And so I lost my job, as you know, because you were there after 9-11. The economy tanked. Jobs are hard to get. Jobs are hard to keep. Yeah. And so I sat around for six months living off my 401k, sitting on my computer all day, producing beats on an old software called Fruity Loops. I remember Fruity Loops. I, um, and every once in a while, if you listen to the Waterman D-Train show, you'll hear me playing some of these old house music in the background that I produced on a, a compact Fasario with a uh, 200 megahertz processor, 128 megabytes of RAM. I mean, we're talking rudimentary stuff, but I was spending all day long on my computer. And my dad called me. He's like, hey, you know, what are you going to do with your life? I'm like, well, you know, I'm sitting around spending 12 hours a day on my computer. I'm seeing these advertisements for something called A plus and Microsoft MCP and MCSE. And, you know, maybe I should go to school for computers because if I want to sit around on a computer for 12 hours a day, I'm going to get paid for it. Smart. And, it's, and at this point, my father was living in Long Beach, California, because he, once again, following his dream and his path and his ability to recognize opportunity to uh, get into a better position at Master Foods. He had to take a promotion actually from Ohio out to Texas. He was in Texas for three years, and then he got promoted and transferred to Long Beach, California. Excellent. And this is where my life change came in place. I always say the best thing that ever happened to me was getting fired from the ambulance plant. 
and I had a ball busting manager named Bob Schooley. And um, I used to hate the guy, but now I love him because if he wouldn't have fired me, I'd probably still be there working on ambulances. <laughs> and so I told my dad this, and he's like, well, I'll give you two choices. You can stay in Ohio, find a job, pay rent, which at the time I think I was paying $450 a month in a two-bedroom townhouse, which by nowadays is nothing. Right. He said, I can pay for your school, and you can go to school full-time, you can work full-time, pay a rent, or you can move out to Long Beach, California, live in my house for free, and I'll pay for your school. Well, let me get off the scales here. Stay in Ohio with my <laughs> ex-wife, working full-time, and going to school, and the cold, and living in Columbus, and the gray skies, and being depressed, or move to beautiful California, live for free, and go to school and go to the beaches. Well, as I said earlier, I spent 18 years skateboarding. Yeah. Now, back in the 80s and 90s, skateboarding in the Midwest was frowned upon. Um, the X Games didn't exist. Um, you're lucky to see a skateboarder on a commercial. Sadly, he always sounded like Spicoli, which drove me nuts. I hated the uh, cliche Hollywood version of what skaters talk like. I just you know, heard that episode. <laughs> no, I just I just heard that episode on your on your show. Yeah, and you don't like Spicoli enough, talk. Well, interestingly enough, back in second and third grade, my teacher, what do you want to do when you're living? I want to move to California and be a professional skateboarder. Well, at this point, the skateboarding is pretty much done, but here's my dream. I get to move to California. So it wasn't a much of a choice. So I packed up the uh, 1995 Ford Escort LX, which had recently been robbed and had all my stuff stolen out of it. Oh, he's not so bragging. He said LX Escort. No, he's not bragging. LX. You know, my short... <laughs> My, my Sherwin Vega 12s and my Phoenix Gold Amp had just been recently stolen out of the back, so I had no music. But anyhow, I packed <laughs> up the escort. Uh, I drove to Long Beach. Um, fast forward a little bit. Went to school for uh, computers. Got my A-plus certification, uh, which is a big deal for guys with learning disability. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about with the, the, lear the learning disability. Nothing, no problems? You got through it? Well, because, um, you know, learning disabilities, they affect people a different way, and I'm a very hands-on person. Yes. Um, you know, back in the day, I would take apart my dad's VCR when the rewind belt broke and it would shut off. I'd figure out how to fix VCRs. I would take apart things as a kid, figure out how they worked. And so I had a very mechanical mind. You know, I used to build skateboard ramps. I was always fixing bikes when I was a kid. Um, my dad always had computers, but we weren't really allowed to do things with them other than homework. I remember my brother ran a, uh, back when uh, CompuServe was the big thing, we're all on dial-up. We were handling a bulletin board system on my dad's computer out of his house for a while, and then he shut that down. I was a sysop. And, and the funny thing is, here I am going to school for computers, but I never actually had my own computer or internet connection until 1999. And at the time, you know, as you know, you had to pay for dial-up. Yeah. AOL was king. Well, well, being a poor kid on the west side of Columbus, I couldn't afford that. So what I would do is I would get around all the stores and get those free CDs. I would give you like free 20 minutes a month. And so I'd have Juno loaded up. I'd have Kmart Blue White loaded up. I'd have every free service. And then once I expired my uh, airtime, I would just switch over to the other one. And, um, and so fast forward, now I'm going to school for computers. I passed the A+, which was easy enough because it was basically just a test on learning how to build computers, how to troubleshoot computers. But when it came to the Microsoft exams, that's where I came to a little problem because Microsoft was pass-fail. And Microsoft is more about networking. And it wasn't about the actual computers, and it wasn't like you, they send you in a classroom and say, okay, set up this network. It was reading six, you know, six paragraphs for one question, all this convoluted stuff, and it was timed. And 
I don't know. I passed the MCP the first time, the MCSE, it took me twice, but I, I made my way through it. And at the time, you know, I just came from building ambulances. I was making $12 an hour, which in 1999 money, that was pretty good money. Not too shabby. But now I'm living in California. When I first got out there, it took me three months to find a job. I found a job loading cars at Sears for like $7 an hour working part-time. So there was no money there. Yep. And um, I remember I got a phone call. This this up-and-coming up and coming web host company called me up and said, hey, we got your number from school. We'd like to interview you for a job. And I remember it was me and two other people from my school and the two other people from California. So they're used to, um, you know, better wages. And out of the three of us, I'm the only one who took the job because the other two people, they didn't think that the job paid enough. They thought, well, the hourly wage, wage, wage sucked. But me, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to school for computers. Here's my first entry-level job in the computer field. Yeah, the pay's not that great, but it's better than loading cars with people's toolboxes at Sears. And so I took the leap. And one of the things they didn't tell us when they were interviewing us because they were, you know, they'd only been around for three years. After I worked there for 30 days, yeah, I was making $10 an hour, but I also got free PPO health insurance, free dental insurance, and all these free benefits. And that in itself, you know, was worth the price in gold at that point. That is correct. And so long story short, uh, my dad retired. He said, hey, I'm going to move to Florida. I want to be in the other family in Ohio, but not deal with the snow. And that's the story we're all familiar with here on the East Coast. And he said, well, you can stay in California. Once again, you can move down there with me. Well, in, 19, in 2003, a one-bedroom apartment in the bad side of Long Beach, California, was $1,200 a month. Yes. And clearly, I wasn't going to be able to support that on the, uh, the $10 an hour I was making working for the web hosting company. And so I, I told the web hosting company, hey, sadly, I'm, I'm going to have to leave. I'm moving to Florida. Well, they offered me a job. They said, take your computer, go to Florida, and you can answer support emails from the bedroom at your house. Yes, you can. You made okay, your own sweet. job. <laughs> that is very sweet. And so they paid me the same. I got a free computer out of the deal. I moved across uh, the country. Set up. I did that for about six months. The only downside to doing that is you're in a new town. You work from home. So you don't have the opportunity to meet people. I mean, but you, set, so you set your own hours, couldn't you? Yeah, but after you get off of work, what do you do as a single guy? Go to the bar and try to find other dudes to hang out with? It doesn't really work that great. At least it didn't work for me. And well, so long story short. You're at the cutting edge of internet to where you could meet people online in boardrooms, I guess, or what do they call them? Chat rooms. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was doing the chat room thing uh, long before MySpace existed. Uh, MSN communities were out there. Yahoo GeoCities, AOL had a version. People always forget about them when it comes to social media. They think MySpace was the first place, but actually MSN, I would do all that. But long story short, I was just, I needed social interaction. Yeah, you did. So I ended up leaving. Um, I quit the web hosting company. I went and got a job doing uh, phone support for DSL, for Bell South. And I met people that way. And long story short, just to fast forward it a little bit, I was doing computer stuff. Um, I ended up getting a job opening up a um, CompUSA, which is now defunct. They were a big box computer store. I remember them. They were like Best Buy. And as we say on my podcast, my brother actually went to school for radio um, after he graduated, but he never finished because he didn't want to do the internship and work for free to get all his credits. I went to the but, Connecticut um, School of Broadcasting, just like your bro, bro. Yeah, I think he went to the one in Cincinnati. I'm not sure what the name of it was. I but, went to um, the one in Davie, I think it was at the time, in F Davie, Florida. 
And so I was still big into uh, radio. And when I was working at CompUSA, I was listening to a, uh, a nighttime show that didn't last very long. And um, it was after Hurricane, I actually still have the sticker on my computer here, Hurricane Wilma, which was the second hurricane I lived through down here in Florida. When we moved to Florida, they said, don't worry about it. Southwest Florida, it's south of Tampa. The hurricanes always fly up. They haven't had a hurricane since the 60s. Well, six months after we lived here, Hurricane Charlie hit, and then Wilma hit. And Wilma affected um, a lot of the um, internal cities of the state pretty bad. So the local radio station was having a a band, I mean, a a tribute, a charity concert. And I think uh, the guy from the Bullet Boys was down here. ACDC played, a few other bands. And this nighttime show I was listening to, and I became a call-in. I call in all the time and, and start talking on the air and all that. I, you know, I went down there and I took some pictures and I shot some videos and I met the, the host and the producer. And long story short, made friends with them. Started hanging out with them on the outside. And it's like, now, hey, got my foot in the door of this radio thing. Yes. And so we hung out. And then um, I actually, the, sadly, and you know, you know how this goes on radio. I actually booked a guest. There was this guy here in town. He, he's a crazy nut. He, he would sit on the sidewalk look like Elvis. Um crazy guy but somehow a video got to me that some kids filmed where they walked to this guy's house and the, the place has just had all this bizarre crap he had like a six foot tall jesus on the crucifix of the floor he had all this naked photos of dudes on his wall and all that stuff and so anyhow i booked him for the show and the night that he was supposed to be on was the night that the show got fired because as you know they fire people on fridays right after the end of their show so they don't talk bad about the company on the air right and so that and so I, I was probably in the studio three or four times, and that, that dried up quickly. And I was like, well, there goes my radio thing. No, but, but you're a real also, broadcaster. You, you're not a real broadcaster unless you get fired from a radio station for whatever reason. Sometimes it's just as simple as they're changing formats. Uh, that we, we went from country to, to rock, uh, so we're going to change everybody. And, and uh, you know, it, it, So you are a real broadcaster. Well, I, at that point, I wasn't even I wasn't even hired. It was like I was just doing them a favor. Hey, I, I can get you this nutball on the air and all that. But I was also a listener of the afternoon show, and they were still on. And they've actually they're still on today. The Stan and Haney Show. It's on ninety six K Rock FM, um, WRXK, Naples Fort Myers. They've actually been working together and on the same radio station since nineteen ninety seven. Wow! Which in terrestrial radio is a huge long time. That is staying power for sure, man. There's only a handful of people. I mean, you can count a handful or maybe two handfuls of radio personalities that actually make any kind of money. Yes, yeah, you mentioned Howard Stern, Rick Dees, and Casey Kasem. Those are the ones that made a bunch of money. For the most part, people don't make a lot of money on radio. And not only were they on radio, but they're actually on a 100,000-watt stick, which is also rare nowadays. Big time. There's only, I think, 100,000-watt stations. Sadly, the position of the station, a lot of our signal goes out into the golf, and on a clean day, you can pick us up in uh, Cuba. Yeah. But anyhow. Yeah, I had 50,000 watts in South Florida in, uh, I think it was Homestead, Florida, and it went to Cuba, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we had a lot of li- listeners in Cuba. And so I was listening to Stan Haney. I'm calling a few times, but uh, to be honest with you, they, they kind of didn't care for that nighttime show that got fired. And so I never let them in on the fact that I knew them because I didn't want to burn any bridges that way because you know how radio people are. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and one day, Stan was complaining that his computer was causing problems. Now, you know from working in radio that radio people are very um, cautious about letting fans 
into their personal life because they don't want people to try to exploit them or, you know, talk this and that and all that. And so obviously he's not really interested in allowing a fan to work on his computer. Right. But what it was, I said, Hey, not only can I fix your computer, but I can do it remotely. So I don't have to step foot in your house and you get to see everything I'm doing. Well, now there's no threat to him because now he don't have a weird fanboy coming to his house and he don't have to worry about somebody snooping through his computer. So long story short, I was able to fix his computer remotely and then he had me log in Haney's and fix his. And I would call in a few times. And then one day Stan reached out to me and said, hey, can you do anything with websites? Matter of fact, I can. I work for a web hosting company. I've actually been building websites since 2003. I manage my own website. He's like, well, can you build us a website and can you handle it and manage it? Sure can. Did all that for a while. Well, Haney's best friend was his, also his guitar player in his band. And um, he was their producer. And sadly, he died in a motorcycle accident. Oh. And they were struggling finding producers. They would, you know, the station would bring people in that, you know, they really didn't have good chemistry with, this and that. And so I was building their websites and then uh, did that for about five years. And then Haney's girlfriend at the time, she got tired of dealing with the Facebook stuff because all the bad comments and messages and all that, she just, she's done with it. And so they reached out to me again, hey, can you manage our Facebook page? Sure. I already managed four. I can manage yours. Nail, uh, Detrain, let me nail down the timeline on this. You said you were sure. doing websites since 2003. When did you actually yep. get to Central Florida? Um, um, I started doing um, websites in California in 2000. Well, actually, I was doing websites, in, well, rudimentary websites. I was doing the whole MSN stuff in Ohio in 99. But like front, when I started front page and HTML and stuff like that? No, it, like I said, it was very similar to Facebook now. It was basically put photos in and, and, you know, you had friends list and all that. It wasn't until I was in California and worked for Lunar Pages that they gave me a free web hosting package and Dreamweaver so I could learn how to do all the HTML stuff and to troubleshoot people's websites when they had bad scripts and all that. Gotcha. And so I moved to Southwest Florida, Fort Myers, Cape Coral area in 2005. Um, I started doing Stan and Haney stuff. I would say... Oh, maybe 2012, maybe. And you were doing it, and, wait, okay, from from the West Coast, you were going to the East Coast, or or you had already made the trip to the East no, Coast? No, I moved to I moved to Southwest Florida in 2005. Okay. So I was only in California for three years, and when my dad retired, I moved down here. And I, I kind of fast forward a little bit, but when I was working at CompUSA, yeah. I'd gone to school for computers. I had more certifications than anybody in the tech shop because I was hired last and I had the least amount of hours and I was getting paid the, the least. Oh. And my dad's like, hey, you know, I didn't put you in school for you can make $8 an hour. So my dad, that's when my dad and I decided to create at computers. We opened up our own IT firm in 2004. So from 2004 until present day, I run an IT firm. Excellent. And so that's how I was able to log into Stan Haney's computers and fix them because I, that's what I did for a living. I ran an IT firm. I was fixing computers, managing networks and all that fun stuff. Yeah. That remote and, technology is amazing. Cause I've, I, I run Sam broadcaster on my uh, radio, what.com internet radio station, and I'm able to reboot it from, from remote. And that, I mean, I, I, I've since lost that technology. Is there, I, is there still a, a way to do that because I uh, the the one that I was using doesn't work anymore. Do you know of one to, that uh, you can do remote access on? Um, if the computer's up and running, there's you know I use a company called Splashtop, but there are actual network devices you can put on the network that will allow you to um, 
manage computer remotely. I can send you some information off the air about that. I don't have any on top of my head right now. Cool. Thank you. The, the I use just runs in the background, kind of like the um, team viewer and all that. It's a so different company. you and your dad opened ACT Computers when, uh, 2014, you said? Uh, 2004. And the reason we're ACT Computers. That's great. Yeah, because back then, people still used the phone book. And so ACT put us at the front of the, the computer. Better believe part of the it. phone book. And we we joke around, tell people that we're affordable computer techs or Abernathy consulting teams and this and that. <laughs> but there really, there really wasn't anything other than, hey, we want to be close to the front of the phone book. Yeah, we want to be at the, the top of the computer list in the phone book. Excellent. And so, and so long story short, uh, now I'm managing Stan Haney's webpage. That's part of my package. You know, it's just. I created the site. I would update it when I was driving around town. If they were talking about something on the air that I was, that was going on out in public, if I was nearby, I would stop, take pictures, send it into them and post it to their Facebook page. And so I was kind of going like a digital, kind of like the digital producer, if you will. And then, uh, it's a great webpage, very functional. I mean, just, and lots of content to look at. I was uh, going through it today and it was just, there's so much to see. And, and I like that all your podcasts are, are hosted on it as well. Yeah, that's part of the uh, digital four ten. You know, the digital four ten thing. Um, going back to nineteen ninety nine. Right. Um, I was writing screenplay when I was married. Okay. Uh, screenplay and, and the main character's name was Donovan because I didn't like my name Donnie at the time. I was like, Donnie's a dumb name. Went by Don as I got older, but I thought Donovan was a good strong name. And as having a learning disability, I misspelled it, so it's spelled D O N. D-O-N-A-V-I-N, because I sounded it out. So that's why Donovan 410 is misspelled. But okay. it's Donovan McNabb's name the same way, so it's not a big deal. And so when I worked for Lunar Pages and they gave me the free website, I needed an, I needed a URL, okay, d-410.com. So d-410.com has actually been in existence and up and running since 2003. That is cool in the gang, man. <laughs> well, and where the 410 came from is back with pager technology. Remember, we all had our own little codes. We had our pager codes back before cell phones. My pager code was 410. Oh, okay. 410 was a uh, number kept popping up in my uh, life. Um, obviously, in the 90s, 420 was big. That was my girlfriend's code. So me, half of her is 410. Um, the store number of the Little Caesars I used to work at was 410. My login code as a lawn care company I did telemarketing for was 410. And so the number 410 just kept popping up. We're in some Jim Carrey so, territory here, man. Number 23. <laughs> this is great. And well... And like I said, I didn't get my first internet access until the late 90s. Well, back before Facebook and MySpace, we didn't trust the internet because we were raised, we're old school, we were raised not to trust strangers, right? Right. And so nobody went on AOL or CompuServe with their real name. You didn't put Don Abernathy out there. You needed a screen name, a handle, if you will. And so I had this screenplay I've been working on, the main character named Donovan. 410 was my number. So since 1999, my screen name on Hotmail has been Donovan410 to this day. That's my Xbox screen name. That's Donovan410. And so that's where the D410 has been in play. And um, so to fast forward, I know for your listening audience, they're probably getting uh, busy from all the back and forth. Dude, but, I, um, I'm fascinated. Uh, you, you've, you've led a life. Everybody's got a story. And D-Train, you have a story, man. This is great. Well, D-Train, actually, that comes. That was my radio name that was uh, given to me by Stan and Haney, and I'll get to that momentarily. Uh-huh. Um, and so now I'm managing their Facebook page. I'm hosting their website. 
and back to um, opportunity. And maybe, you know what, this, you know, some people might say this next part's luck, but I think it has to do with all the groundwork and the six years of working for free. Because if you want to get in radio, the best way to do it is work for free. You got that right. You know. And so I've been managing their website for free. I've been doing the Facebook stuff. I would um, edit some audio. I'd send in some bumper stuff and that they, they, they would actually use on air. And um, here's, a, here's a cool thing. Long before I got into radio, um, that nighttime show that I was telling you about, yeah. when they got fired, uh, the producer went on to be one of Man Cow's many, many, many producers. He had like eight producers. <laughs> and at the time, Josh Green, he's that comedian that has tr- um, autism. Okay. I think he just won like last comic standing and um, the producer said, Hey, I'm going to have this guy on you. Can you build a bumper for me? And so I went out and got a 40 zero background music and I took some clips from him and I produced this intro for him and it actually got played on man Cow show syndication. So before long before I was ever in radio, I, the bit that I produced was syndicated across the country as an intro for Josh green or Josh blue. I'm sorry. Josh blue is the comedian's name. Yes. So I think I've that heard that cool. name on Rogan. Yeah, to me, that was this. I hate something I did at home on my computer just got played across the nation. You better that believe was, it, man. To me, that was it. That was the end all be all. Yeah. But a little I know, four years later, I'd be working in radio. And how that came to be, um, with all the groundwork that I put in, the fact that I would, because um, at the end of their day, they would send me bits to upload to their website. And always, always did it. No matter what I had on my calendar, I made sure that I made time to get their website so it was up to date every day. And so doing that for five years, they knew that I was reliable and that I was a hard worker. Probably starting and to I, feel bad that they're using you and not paying you any money. They're like, uh, you know, we need to break some of this uh, off for old Donnie. Oh, well, perhaps. But um, at the time, once again, the uh, 2008, the market crashed. Oh, um, I yeah. say at the time, she back then, she was an OR circulator for plastic surgeons. And so she was making great money, getting uh, bonuses from the anesthesiologist, getting monthly bonuses from the plastic surgeon. That's what I need, well, a sugar mama. Well, exactly. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when the economy dries up, guess who can't afford chin implants and fake tips anymore? Uh, rich people. Yeah. And so she lost all her bonuses. She was losing all her time. And she ended up going back to being a dental assistant. She hated doing that. And she decided she wanted to be a school teacher. And so she was going to school to be a teacher while working full-time as a dental assistant, well, it gets to a point, going back to my brother's whole thing, teachers have to work for six months as an intern for free. Yeah. And so now we're like, crap. Our dual-income house is going to get out of single income. This sucks. And I remember she was she had to start on January 14th as an intern, right after all the holiday season. Right. What year was this, in 2009? Uh, six years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, six years, yeah, because I, I was 13. doing the uh, web posting stuff for Stan Haney and doing their, their Facebook page for free for like five or six years. Okay, so and, she was um, doing the dental assistant for uh, about five yeah. years then. Okay. Yeah, about 2012, 2013. Um, that's a little hazy, going back to my whole learning disability thing. But anyhow, yeah. um, I remember her internship was going to start January 14th, and uh, we're like, what are we going to do? I got a phone call from Stan. Um about the end of November, beginning of December, he said, hey, our producer, um, he's going to leave in the show. He's going to go work um, as an engineer assistant, more money. So the same yeah. building, but he wants to work with the engineers and get paid more. Cause, you know, at this point, after th- 2008, uh, terrestrial radio money dried up. 
everybody took a hit. Yeah, I think and, I made um, ten bucks an hour back then. Well, it's a little less now, but um, yeah, the notoriety you know, of being on the radio is where you make your money, where you DJ parties exactly. on the weekends. And the free concert tickets and T-shirts and all that fun stuff. Can't pay your rent with swag. And so Stan's like, you know, you've been doing our website for years. You're a fan. You've been listening to us since 2004. Um, you know, the company's not thrilled that we want to hire from outside the company, but we can't think of anybody who knows our show better than you. Would you be interested in the job of being a radio producer? Well, shit, yeah. Yeah. So here's a guy who's been listening to Howard Stern while building ambulances. I was listening to Obi and Anthony the day they did the sex for Sam. I got kicked off the Boston station. You know, I, when I was out in California, I was listening to the radio, and I always thought, man, I could do such a better job. Ironically, um, the producer Stan and Haney had before they before Tommy, um, he, he was kind of a... a, a I don't know, a layabout, if you will. And I used to sit there saying, man, I could do so much better job than that guy. Well, radio could, producer could be so many things. Did you work the board for yeah. them, make drops for them, uh, make, uh, you know, sample their audio for commercial spots? What did you do as a producer for them? Well, I'll, I'll get to that momentarily. And oh, okay. so now, I'm, oh, back to the opportunity, I'm like, oh, well, this is insane. When does it start? January 7th. Oh, so seven days before my fiance was to start working for free for six months, I was going to start working a second job because I still had the computer firm. And I went to my dad. I'm like, you know, Stan wants me to produce our show, but how can I do that when we've got this computer gig? He's like, we'll make it work. Yeah. So I adjusted my schedule. I would work from get up, go to the office. I'd do a computer gig from 530 in the morning, leave at noon. My dad would pick up my customers at noon. I'd go to the radio station, do show prep from one o'clock work until seven o'clock then go home and then sometimes go back and do more computer work or go home but i was working from you know 13 hours a day i believe it and uh, but i'm glad you had your dad man family is great yeah and so i i did it and i you know i i went in there and i trained for like two weeks for free because once again if you want to make it in radio ladies and gentlemen you got to work for free you better believe uh, because it. you know the station wasn't going to you know come up with any budget money to pay two producers to work at once and so I, I learned the ropes, and I remember my first day on the air, um, Stan called me Dontrell. Oh. He's like, we're trying to come up with a, a nickname for Dontrell. Well, and the reason we kind of went with an air name is because my radio work, in fact, that I'm doing work for mayors and fire departments and lawyers and all this stuff, we didn't want to hinder my honesty on the radio by trying to worry about protecting my, my, um, my persona as a professional IT guy. So we didn't want to go with my real name. We want to give me a little anonymity. Right. And so, uh, Stan's like, yeah, we're trying to come up with a name for Don Trell. And Haney's like, you mean the D train? Because <laughs> for those, for those of you guys who are fans of baseball, uh, Don Trell, Wayne Willis, <laughs> AKA known the D train. He was a uh, pitcher for, um, double baseball teams. And it's so funny because, um, and he said, you mean the D-Train? And then they laughed, and he looked at me and said, don't worry, the first one's never stick. Well, it's stuck. So that's where the name yeah. D-Train comes from. you just been christened. <laughs> yeah, so that's where D-Train came from. And back to the Waterman and D-Train show, Dave the Waterman has been a friend of the show who's been off and on that show for 19 years, which is why our podcast has such a radio flavor to it, because Dave still works for them. Um, he's on their, he actually works on promotions now and he's on their show on Friday and throughout the week. So he's still on the air. And, uh, 
I love when you say Dave's not here. It just it just harkens well, back for sure. Well, Dave's forty five years old, but I, he's the world's worst um, Peter Pan. <laughs> he uh, he grew up in a very uh, fortunate family, and so he didn't put much um, interest in uh, uh, learning the work ethic and or going to school. And so he's kind of surfed his way through life, literally. <laughs> and um, that's either a good thing or a bad thing. But he's not he's not the most reliable guy. I think out of our eighty nine episodes of our show, he's missed like five of them. <laughs> <laughs> But you you pick on him so much, man. I love his vocabulary. Gnarly. <laughs> yeah, he, he's got that Spicoli thing. And, and for a while, anytime he would use those crutch phrases, I would shoot him with a Nerf gun here in the studio. <laughs> to try to vocabulary because he would say stoked like six to eight times an episode. And he just stoked. had these Oh, my goodness. Stoked. Yes. You called him on that one. I just listened to that stoked. one, too. Early, so I would end up shooting with a Nerf gun here in studio. But to answer your question, um, producing, I would um, book for guests. I would uh, fill, obviously you got to take phone calls and fill out price sheets. That's the key role to any good producer. <laughs> but um, you know, I would book the guests. I would uh, find news stories. I remember, I think it was my third day on the job. Sandy Hook happened. Oh, and so I got to deal with that. You know, insanity of trying to find. Uh, news stories and the good thing about Stan and Haney because they've been doing radio for so long and Stan went to school for journalism he still stands by the rules of three which is you need to find three quality sources that say the same thing so that which is gone in journalism that's why journalism is so bad everybody's quick to be they want to be first not right well Stan's got the old school training so he you know while this stuff's going on we wouldn't go on the air with news unless I found three you know valid sources and so I learned that from him yeah. But yeah, and I, whenever they do live reads, I would have to edit the uh, the live read during the show so that it was ready to play. You know, that minute and a half live read, I'd have to edit down to forty five seconds and put it in, uh, into Audio Vault so it was ready to play during the next commercial break. Every Wednesday and Friday, they would have a character on the show that was originally thirty minutes. I would have to edit it live while the show was still going on, and I was still all, doing all my other producer duties. Narrow that down to a six and a six and a half minute bit to play at the end of the show where you still had a beginning, middle and end, and it still made sense. And so that's where all my, you know, the years of producing, you know, techno, my computer and all the video stuff came into play. And so I worked for them for five and a half years and I loved every minute of being a radio producer and being on the air. But what I didn't love, and it it reminded me why I started my own business to begin with. And that was, I don't like working for people. (laughs) Especially, you, you work yeah, well them. with others. You don't work well for for others. Yes, I'm a great business partner and a uh, consultant, <laughs> but I'm not a very good employee. <laughs> and as time went by, um, that that company got more and more corporate, where we have to log on and do sexual harassment seminars, which I would just log in and then leave because I never sexually harass anybody. So why should I sit through this nonsense? Right. But um, it just got to the point where I wasn't enjoying it. Um, the radio station was round trip, 70 miles from my house. Oh my. Yeah. And so between doing the computer work and driving to the station, I was putting 135, 140 miles a day on my car. Yeah. That's not good. I um, I got lazy. Every radio station I I worked for, I moved right next door to them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Haney, Haney lives, I think, four miles from the radio station because he's been yeah. working there so long. Yeah, I think the one in and, the Florida Keys, I, I lived in an apartment right upstairs, which was bad because when the hurricanes came, they woke me up and you had to go down there and get on the air. 
Well, and, and as radio started to change and um, this thing called podcasting came out, and then obviously the radio is trying to compete with Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and all these apps, the younger kids are starting to stream it more. Right. They're wanting to start to stay relevant. They're spending money on Facebook consultants to figure out how to, to work with the new Facebook algorithms. People may not realize this, but uh, Facebook changes their algorithms like monthly. Um, example, you post a post on Facebook, I think if it's made up, if you don't have a photo and it's just all font, they won't share it with any any of your followers, maybe 2% of them. Right. Um, if you can try to take a picture of a bunch of text. They have algorithms to know when it's advertisement, this and that. And I tell people on my podcast, the reason if you go to my Instagram page, uh, my Twitter page, my, my D-Train Facebook page, the reason I have so many selfies is because our pages are treated differently than your private page. The right. private page, you can post a meme, you can post um, a link to whatever, and they don't care. But if you have a public persona page, i.e. an uh, on-air personality page, a podcast page, um, the industry looks at that as you trying to make money off of that page. And so if I were to download a meme to my computer and repost it, I can get hit with copyright infringement because yeah. I didn't make that meme. I can share it from the original source, but I cannot post it as an original post. Right. Um, if I want to post a picture of something, uh, a screenshot from a movie, copyright infringement. And so because but you're of the a rules, curator, you're curating all this. <laughs> it, it, well, you, you can do it, but then you got to put, Hey, this photo was from this website. <laughs> on this day, and, and so now you're basically advertising for other people. And so that's why you see a lot of public persona pages, a lot of selfies, a lot of pictures of food and boring shit, because it has to be stuff you took photos of. Otherwise you risk copyright infringement. Right. It, I, it was either pictures of you or your studio. Was it was that what I, the the quote that I got from you? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. And I digress a little bit. I I love working radio. I got to meet a lot of famous people. Um, Jim Belushi, um, Marlon Wayans. Um, I got pictures with Daisy Duke, uh, cousin Eddie. Um, I Sweet. on and on and on. I've met I met uh, every band that came out in the last six and a half years that came down here for Fort Rock. You know, I got to interview him on the air with Stan. And so I learned quite a bit. But to get to the podcasting side, um, <laughs> he no longer works, so I, so I don't have to worry about it. Um, because I didn't have radio training and because I have a bit of a speech impediment, because not only having a learning disability, but being from the hills of Kentucky, my addiction uh, wasn't that great. And I actually had to get through speech classes. I had a program director who liked me personally, but thought my on-air personality sucked. <laughs> what? I haven't to noticed the, the speech that, impediment the whole time. Here I am stuttering like a madman. To the point that one day, um, Stan said on air, hey, when we get a break, go see the engineer. Tell him to come fix the gain on your level because I can't get your microphone. It's very super quiet. Program director went to the engineer and said, don't even worry about it. He doesn't need a microphone. Now, this was my third program director. Prior to this, program directors I had, they would, when I got to the remote, they'd put me on the air because, hey, you got to learn it somewhere, right? right? It's all about repetition, repetition. Got to get your reps in. How are you going to learn unless you do it? And so I would get a few call remotes here and there, and, you know, they weren't great, but I was learning. And uh, when the time my third program director came around, yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's four program directors I had in five and a half years. That just shows you the way things go. <laughs> that's how it goes, man. But when this one program director came, all my remotes dried up, done, gone, zip, zing. Um, he didn't care for me on the air, didn't think I needed to be on the air. Well, during all this program director change, was there any format change, or was it always rock and roll? 
Um, when I first started working at the station, they were doing primarily talk. Okay. Um, but obviously, when a uh, radio station hires a music consultant to tell you what the listener wants, what are they going to say? They want music. <laughs> I guess. And so then yeah. they switched back to classic rock, and then they closed down their um, progressive station, and they kind of mixed formats. So they would mix the modern-day stuff and the classic rock stuff. And But there was some format changes, but all that time, Stan Haney was the anchor. They're still there. They're still there two to six every day, the whole time. They've been there. Um, when Howard Stern went to Sirius, they moved Stan Haney to the mornings for a few years before I worked there, but it wasn't conducive to what they do. So, uh, they moved Stan Haney back to the afternoon, put Bubba on in the morning. Um, and so the station did go through some changes and, but, um, the program directors didn't really come and go with the station changes. They just went and came and went with the budget changes, as you know. Yeah. And so now they're like, Hey, we need to get into this podcast game. We need some podcasts. And so uh, the program director went to Dave. So Dave, we want to want you to do a podcast for us. You say Dave Waterman. So Dave, has, Dave the Waterman. Dave has no technical know-how. He has no money. He, ha- he doesn't have a computer. And he's not. He's Dave is a great guy. He works hard, but he's not a he's not a self-starter. He's he's not. Uh, he's very codependent. And they tried for like three and a half months to get Dave to do a podcast for us. And I think he came in one day, he recorded some stuff on his cell phone in his garage. It was unlistenable because the audio quality was so bad. Right. And um, Dave being a heel, people love when he fails. And so they they were laughing that he couldn't even pull that off. Oh. And the program director director reluctantly came to me. Now, at this point, I had already been taking Stan Haney's shows every single day and uploading them to the Internet. So they, they already had a podcast. Going. Yeah, it's already a podcast. There, That's it. Program director would take segments of his show, put them up there as a podcast, but now they only have two podcasts on the station. And um, as you know from one of my page, one of my other hobbies that I got into about 10 years ago is I'm a World War II reenactor, which goes back to me saying the fact that I took college prep history my senior year comes into play in the future. Yep. Um, about 2003, I fell in love with World War II. I tell people I have an unexplainable, unquenchable desire and thirst for all things World War II. What's your favorite gun from crazy. World War II? Your favorite uh, personal weapon? Um, my favorite personal weapon, just because I own one, is my M1 Garand. Some people call it M1 Grand, but this guy's name was John Garand. Um, is I that could the M1917A6? That's the M1, uh, M1 Garand with the uh, eight-round loadable clip that goes ping. That's why... Hollywood's lazy. Yeah. And uh, World War II movies are big. They say, hand me a clip, hand me a clip. Well, 30 years later, when you see a movie with a guy with a magazine and his AR-15, he still asks for a clip because the writers don't know any better. (laughs) (laughs) But to answer the question, if I could afford it, my dream gun to own would be an M1928 Thompson submachine gun or the later variant, the M1A1 Thompson submachine gun. But, uh, you my my brother and I were pretty pretty well into uh, World War II as well. But and I, I had models of Hellcats and Tomcats and uh, Lightnings and stuff hanging off my my ceiling. So I'm very interested in this. I haven't listened to your Scuttlebutt uh, podcast yet, but it's in my feed, ready to go. So tell me more, well, D Train. You know the World War the World War II stuff has really led me, gave me access to doing cool stuff that I've never would have had it opportunity to do before i have a friend of mine up in central florida he owns three sherman tanks two hellcats um all kind of heavy equipment i i get to go out and do um reenactments with them if you go on youtube and look for season two episode one of military collectors i'm prominently displayed in that episode 
Um, a few months back, I was able to dress up in full Army Air Corps and do a photo shoot in front of the movie Memphis Bell. It was the uh, E-17 that was redesigned to look as the Memphis Bell because the original one's in the museum. Yeah. Um, got to do that. Um, I got to um, go out to the National World, the National Museum of Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas. Um, I just uploaded a video of that trip. Did some um, podcasts out there from their location. And it's kind of a cool story how I fell in with them. One of the things you do and how you and I met was through Instagram. Yep. I do the same thing. When I see somebody post something cool, I reach out to them. Yep. And the National Museum for the Pacific War was posting this video about how they're, someone's doing an independent film on their property called Walking Point. And so I sent them a message that said, hey, my name is Don Abernathy. I host a World War II-based podcast called What's the Spell About? I'd like to talk to you about your movie you're working on. Would you be interested in doing a phone interview? And they replied back and said, well, uh, yeah, where can we hear some of your shows? So I sent them the link to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Yes. And um, they sent me a message back like two days later. They said, where are you located? Florida? Question mark. I said, yeah, I'm down in Cape Coral, Florida. And they're like, well, we're actually going to be in town in three weeks to shoot the last scene of our movie on this place called uh, Bokelia on yes. Pine Island. Yes. Are you familiar with it? I'm like, yeah, it's 30 minutes from my house. Yes. It's right behind my dad's house. And they're like, well, in order to do this interview, do we have to come to your studio or can you come to us? Would you be interested in coming out to the cast house? Hmm. Let me see. Uh, (laughs) And so I set things up with them and it went from doing an interview with them at their cast house to coming out and having dinner with the full film crew and cast uh, the night before. Uh, Then I got, once they realized once again, um, a key to being around people who in Hollywood or music, as you know, is one, pretend like you're supposed to be there and two, sure. don't act like a fan. Oh, no. Act like, act like you're supposed to be there. I've gotten backstage at many concerts because, I, yeah, this is my spot right here. <laughs> yep. Well, and, and the five and a half years working in radio and, you know, being doing stage announcements in front of 16,000 people, you know, sitting right next to, you know, the guys from Megadeth or, yeah. uh, you know, being around, you know, all the actors that would come in to do the Stan Haney show, I realized early that actors are regular people just with a cooler job than what I have. Correct. And so once I went out to dinner with them and they realized I wasn't going to be a fanboy or being in the way, they said, well, um, you did this World War II stuff. Would you mind coming out to the set tomorrow? Sure. <laughs> and so they actually, uh, Jeff Topsetta, who is the living history director out the uh, National Museum of Pacific War, he was kind of there. Um, history consultant for the Excellent. uniforms and all that. And so he was out there and I went out there and I was helping the uh, actors get their leggings on and helping Jeff get them all dressed in their gear and this and that. And I would help do some set production stuff. And there's one scene at the end of the movie. If you see the walking point movie, um, you'll see an American flag blowing. I'm actually the guy holding the leaf blower off scene, making that flag move. And they gave me credits in the in my name and the credit for all that. Come on, but, yeah, um, best boy grip. What, 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 did you get any what, any title? Um, I haven't. Um, I, I did get invited out to the um, premiere out in Texas, but I wasn't able to go because I already was just out there for. Uh, no, I'm saying on, on your credits. Uh, what's the title? I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I got a book, oh, okay. um, but I'll be getting a copy of um, the movie here next week, and then I'll get to that momentarily. Excellent. Um, but because I. So after we shot that day, I went out to the set and I did like a two and a half hour long interview, maybe three. I ended up breaking into like five sections. Um, 
interviewed the writer, the director, the cast, the crew, um, everybody. And it's one of my most widely downloaded. It's constantly downloaded. And so because, because of Jeff Copsetta was there and the National Museum of Pacific War heard it, they liked what I did with him, but they wanted something that was more conducive to what they do. And so they invited me out to Fredericksburg. And so once again, because of the taking advantage of opportunities, working hard because of a email that I sent to the cast and crew of walking point and getting invited out there yeah. and the, um, the ability to show that I'm not a fanboy and the relationship I built that got me a trip out to Texas to do free. Not only did I do a podcast out there, but I actually got to participate in their living history program, which was great. Excellent. And so I, I just got a call last week, RJ Nevins, the writer and director of, of walking point, uh, the walking point is about um, World War II Marine Corps war dogs. Uh, one of the things I didn't know is war dogs, the Marine Corps didn't have like, you know, kennels set up and they weren't breeding dogs. People actually donated their dogs to the Marine Corps to go fight in the war. Just oh, like actual dogs, because I figured were Marines, some of them had to be called war dogs, but you're talking about actual animals that uh, yes, participated. The, oh, fantastic. Yeah, the, the plot of the movie is a family donates their um, their Doberman Pinscher Duke to the Marine Corps. He goes off to fight. Uh, the private who's in charge of him wants to do everything in his power to get that dog back to the little boy who, who enlisted in the Marine Corps. And so this movie is historically accurate. It shines the light on the fact that families were donating their dogs to the war effort and the, the actual amount of effort that these dogs would put in to the war and sacrifice their lives. Well, Obviously, since this movie is based around dogs, it has a lot to do with the Doberman community. And RJ called me, and they're actually going to be in Orlando next, not this weekend, but next weekend at the um, the uh, Animal, the Kennel Club of Association of American Dog Show. That's not too far away. And they asked me if I could bring up my World War II gear, my Marine Corps stuff, to help their uh, people set up a booth for their um, autograph signing for their book. Yeah. And so next week, and I got to drive to Orlando with all my gear, help their publicists set up their booth for the autograph signing. Um, I'm going to do another interview with them for my podcast out there. And so once again, because of the opportunities and the things I do, now I get to do something cool, going to a dog show and, and doing a podcast from there and, and having more access. And it furthers my relationship with a, you know an independent film company. Man, to quote my main man, Dave, I am so stoked for you. That is fantastic. I, and because I'm a fan of, of uh, remote podcasts, what kind of a, uh, gear do you take? What, what's your equipment of choice? Well, thanks to my friends and my listeners who signed up for Patreon and those who use the Amazon link on my website. I was able recently to purchase a, um, a Mackie mixing board for my studio. And now it's permanent. In the past, I just had a little um, Behringer 8-port eight, little mixing board that I would double duty i would use it here in studio i'd break it down and use it on site when when i'd go to alabama for a um world war ii reenactment i would do a podcast on site i would break down my studio take all that stuff a laptop i took all that stuff off of fredericksburg texas uh take my microphones but because of the support from my community now that i have some nice ak akg uh, microphones here in studio and this mackie mixing board now i can take my rudimentary stuff that i used to start this production company now they've been relegated to my uh, field equipment. Excellent. And so I just take my little, my compressor mics, my little Behringer mixing board and a laptop and uh, some headphones and just go out into the field and do it. 
superstar, man. Don Abernathy, the D train. Tell me more. And, uh, well, just look, so back to the whole podcast thing, how I got into that is the radio station was wanting to get some podcasts on the air. And because Dave wasn't able to, to he didn't have transportation, so he couldn't make it. But he lives in Cape Coral, too. So he was having a hard time getting onto the radio station, use their equipment to record a podcast. And so the program, Haney convinced the program director, hey, D-Train's getting better on the air. His diction's getting better. His, his, um, his talent's getting better. You should give him a chance to do a podcast. Why don't you have him do a, a, pod, a weekly podcast about World War II? Yeah. Guy has a passion for it. He loves it. He's been, you know, he annoys the hell out of everybody on social media with all these photos from these reenactments he does. And so he, re- he reluctantly came to me and said, hey, I want to give you Dave's podcast. I'm tired of, you know, dealing with him. I want you to do it. I was like, okay, I'm not going to turn it down. Right. But I knew Opportunity. I didn't want to have, yeah, but I, I knew I didn't want to have to take that extra trip to the radio station to do it. You can do a podcast also, from anywhere. Exactly. And I also knew that if I did a podcast from the radio station on their equipment, they would hypothetically own it. Right. And this was in December. And I said, Hey, give me to the second week of January. So I went out and I bought $25 microphones, compression mics off of Amazon. Um, that Behringer mixing board was like 69 bucks. I um, got some sound panels out of a dumpster somewhere, re- re- <laughs> recovered them, and I built a studio here in my, my, my bedroom because being at computers, I had access to computers. Right. And so that wasn't a problem. Got microphones, <clears throat> got mixing boards. And, um, but they were kind of enjoying the fact that I took Dave's show. So I went to Dave. I said, don't say anything. They gave me a show, but we're going to do your show too. Yeah. The water show. Don't say anything to anybody. We'll record it at my house. So I went down to the, uh, the guy at the station at the time who was running the website. He said, hey, go on the website and you know, make two pages, one for the What's the Skull podcast and one for the Waterman show. I'm okay. And so we started recording them out of my house. I'd upload them. And, um, you know, the station never said anything. They're just happy they had content and this and that. Right. But what I had found was Dave being codependent, he wouldn't do any show prep. And uh, he wouldn't have much content. My job on the, the Dave the Waterman show was just to be a producer, just to sit here, record it, and have somebody to talk to. Because, as you know, going an hour-long show in your bedroom when no one's around, that takes skill. It's easier to have somebody to look at and talk to opposed to talking to yourself. Absolutely. I started a second show called the Keys Dan Show to where I can learn things, maybe, you know, try to find some some interesting topics to talk about. I'm kind of leaving that one in the dust. I'd much rather talk to someone, have ideas bounced off of someone, which is what you do with Waterman. Continue. And and, well, and that's one of the things that the the What's the Scobot podcast, I've done, um, I think, 60 episodes of those. And every single one of those is an interview. I've yes. interviewed eight World War II vets, yes. and the rest have been um, authors, fellow reenactors, um, independent movie people. So every one of them has been an interview format, which has greatly improved my interviewing skills. I am when so I excited to, to listen guest, to that one. When I book a guest, sometimes, you know, when I book a, a veteran or an author, their publicist or their family member say, well, can you send me a list of your, your questions? And I said, I don't have them. Right. Exactly. I get that a lot. 
and it's always a conversation. It's getting to know you. I didn't do any prep for this. I just said, D-Train knows who he is. He's going to have a story of himself, and you're telling now, man. I'm interviewing World War II vets. They don't have wiki pages. I'm interviewing World War II reenactors. They don't have IMDb pages. The only people who do are the authors and the movie producers. And so there's really, other than ask when, you know, from the family members, when was he born and what branch did he serve? And that's all the information I had to go on. And so I tell people, my interview style, which is very much like yours, you just said it, is like two guys sitting around a bar getting to know each other or rehashing old times. Yeah. I mean, the advantage I had over most of the other uh, podcasts that I do is that I could listen to your podcast. I already knew you were from Kentucky. I already knew your partner, uh, Waterman. And I, I heard the fail to fail. And I like that one, man, the, the the ones that I've heard is just the, some of these guys are come from, from the bottom and they're still trying to scrape themselves up. Just I'm a, so amazing story. Remind me and we'll circle back to how failed the fail came. Yes, uh, please. Again, I, I don't want to give you so much content that this has to turn into a four hour dialogue, but uh, we're just going down the road. You can edit it as you see fit. Yes. But, um, I tell people, you know, in my experience... Oh, by the way, I don't edit. <laughs> sure, me neither. Um, I tell people, in my experience, and you see this a lot with uh, bad journalists, um, people who go into an interview with a predefined list of questions, they're A, not interviewing you, B, they're not listening to your answers, they're just waiting for the pause to ask the next next question, and it's right. a very stilted, boring interview. And so every interview I do with the vets, for example, the first question is always the same. Where were you at at Pearl Harbor? And then the next question is based off of their last answer. And that forces me to actually listen to what they're saying. And it creates a better interview. Yeah, because that way I'm not, yeah, I'm not just looking at the list saying, okay, when's he going to finish the next question too? And it creates a better interview. And once again, I'm interviewing people who don't do interviews for a living. I'm not interviewing celebrities or, you know, people who do 28 radio interviews a day. These are people that, you know, may get interviewed once or twice. And so it makes them more comfortable because they're not feeling like they're taking a quiz. And I'm able to ask them about their, their livelihood and the question based on, on their life. And it just, it's a more fluid and more interesting conversation. Agreed. And so, um, back on track, slowly the day of the Warman thing progressed where I was kind of taking more of the hosting seat. And that's why he still gets top billing because it was originally his podcast. And we joke around that I stole his podcast, but uh, you know, it was me and him. Um, he was on the very first episode of the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt. He okay. was drunk, okay, <laughs> because we recorded both the first episode of the Waterman Show and What's the Scuttlebutt in the same night, and the first episode never aired because he was drunk off his ass. Oh, and so, and that just goes back to his character. I mean, he's open about it. He's uh. You know, he, he's Dave and that's why we love him. That's why he's so fun because he's so open. But, um, and just so over time, the Waterman and D train show became our, our, our main staple. And I recorded them all at my house and, uh, we were uploading them to, uh, to the, uh, radio station's website and, um, things were going along well. And I was there for five and a half years. I was getting really tired of working from five thirty in the morning till eight o'clock at night, sometimes until midnight at night, plus trying to go to the gym and maintain my health and my relationships. Yeah. We can talk about your health as well. Cause that, that's another interesting part of your, of your story. Continue. Um, and I don't know about two years before I, I 
I left the radio station, I started getting some real bad pains, and I woke up one morning, and I was puking, and I couldn't urinate. I couldn't do the morning constitutional things that we're all used to doing. And um, I ended up in the hospital with two kidney stones. Yeah. The downside of working the radio is it's a sedimentary lifestyle. And so sitting behind computers all day and then sitting behind a computer in a radio station for four hours a day, um, my weight shot through the roof. Um, I, like I said, I was always skinny. I, at the age of 22, I weighed a buck 75. Um, fast forward to age 34, working on radio, I blew, you know, for me, I blew up. Um, I got to 249 pounds. I was shopping for a size 38 pants, and now I just had two kidney stones from drinking nothing but Mountain Dew, uh, three cans of uh, the white cans of Monster Energy a day plus two five-hour energies to keep me awake through all the hours I was working. That'll do it. And after I passed the kidney stones, I said, that's it. I <laughs> cut out all the soda, cut out all the energy drinks, and the weight just starts falling off. Because I'd always been going to the gym, but the weight wasn't going away. And so I was the weight started falling off and, but I kept to the schedule and I was still exhausted. And, um, my, I was 39 years old and I called my brother and said, Hey, I'm going to be 40 in June. <laughs> and as you said, you're working radio for $10. Now I was making nine fifty. Right. I was making nine, but after three years, they gave me a 50 cent raise. Hey, I, <laughs> great. <laughs> I said, uh, you know, yeah, I got the at computers thing, but let's be honest. I'm driving 33 miles a day. Right. At the time, gas was like four dollars a gallon. Yeah, I said after gas and travel, I'm I'm basically working for like twenty five bucks a day. I don't know if I want to be forty years old working a, a you know minimum wage job. You know, I love the radio and I love I love Stan Haney, but just it's just it's it's beating me down. I'm putting a lot of time. I got a program director thinks I don't have any talent, and I I saw the writing on the wall. I said, you know, the day Stan Haney retired be the day I'm out the door. Well, like I said, the radio thing, it's unless you can parlay the the um the the celebrity of it into something else, you really don't make a lot of money actually on the radio. Do, were you making appearances at all? Were you were you going yeah, to go and, you know, emceeing things? Well, when Stan Haney would do their appearances, I'd go and their fans loved me. I was signing autographs and all that, you know, but I wasn't getting, you know, parents fees i was just getting paid hourly and like i said my one program director did take away the remotes i was getting so that remote money dried up yeah then there is a and, reason for you not to love being on the radio because yeah you definitely had to parlay it into something else i was doing weddings and parties and concerts and and you know working and you know djing other things when i was off the radio yeah, well, our computers was definitely paying my bills. But um, the other thing is my, my my parents are getting older. You know, we've been doing this since my dad retired in 04, and then we started a business. And I got to thinking, okay, my dad's been, you know, picking on my slack for five and a half years. That's more than anybody can ask for. Um, the writing's on the wall. Um, yeah. Financially, I'm not going to make any more money at this thing. Um, the fans love me. I love Stan Haney like brothers. Still do. I still go down the show. The open door policy. If I want to walk in there, I can. Um so if I'm on that side of town doing a job, I might swing by. But I was like, you know, my parents are getting older. My stepmom's wanting to retire. I think it's time that I uh, give up on this radio thing. I got the podcast. I'm um, going out of my house. I get a lot of great uh, enjoyment from that. Yes. I get the same therapy of talking in a microphone, uh, you know, on my own podcast as I do being here. And, and this is the Stan Haney show. You know, I'm just producer. Yes, I'm on air all day, but 
you know, the writing was on the wall. I was getting exhausted working, you know, 13, 14 hours a day for five and a half years. My, my parents are getting older and I was like, you know, they've done a lot for me. They, they've covered my ass for five and a half years. I think it's time that I give up on this radio thing and I go put all my time and effort into at computers. Right. So I went to stand and I reluctantly told him, I said, dude, I can give you two months. Not two weeks, two months. Which, you know, it was a blow to him because they'll tell you that I was the first producer they had had since Tommy passed away. And there was like four of them between me and him that really brought the show back to where it was before Haney's best friend and the producer passed away in a motorcycle accident. But, you know, for years they were trying to find a producer that they had the same, you know, energy with. And I was that guy. I really helped. And Haney even told me two weeks ago when I was visiting that off the air that I really helped bring that show back. And so it, it really sucked. I mean, I cried. I mean, I'm not ashamed to say at 41, I'm driving out the 40, driving out the street crying is a, the fact that I'm going to kill this relationship with my two best friends. No, I understand but completely, I, man. It's hard to find somebody that you can work with that that kind of a relationship professionally or otherwise is very important to, in your life. And, and they had you, man, and, and they were building something. You were building something together. And, and yeah, I guess you leaving would definitely put a toll on, on their show and, and their well-being uh, altogether. And the universe was talking to me, and I was just getting this weird feeling that it was time to move on, man. I, I, I did my time, and I realized a long time ago that when it's all said and done, life is nothing but the stories you have to tell when, you know, when you're older. And I, I put a lot of energy, time, and to this day, I still help with their Facebook stuff. I still have access to it and, and all that stuff. But And so I put in two months so that I can help them find a new producer and train him to do it to stand handy way. Cause there's a lot, a lot of things, you know, during my time producing, they would have some interns coming in uh, to work underneath me. And everyone says, I can't do half the shit this guy does. The multitasking <laughs> going on with the, the roof. I have three monitors, computers. And, and so they found a guy named Don Anderson. Okay. Don Anderson was six foot five. I'm six foot five. My first, <laughs> My last name starts with an A. And so Don Anderson quickly got named Junior because he was a junior version of me. <clears throat> so I trained Junior in how to do the job. <clears throat> did that, and uh, I left. Oh, I think you found a suitable replacement, at least uh, looks and, and uh, namesake-wise. Yeah, so Junior, junior took over. He, he actually worked in a recording studio as an engineer, so he had the, uh, the ear and the editing um, I just had to show him everything else and how you know to take his skills and apply it to what they needed. So he already had this editing skill set. I had to teach him how to do it on uh, Adobe Audition on PC instead of on on the Apple version of the stuff he used. Right. He was using Pro Tools. And so, then. And so I left. And okay, let my parents slowly back off and go enjoy their golden years. Sweet. And three weeks to the day that I left Stan and Haney. Um, we get a phone call. Some point, but like last five years, my dad's ex-brother-in-law, we still call him Uncle John, he actually moved down to Boquilla where they shot that movie. Yeah. And he was living down there. He was a retired cop in World War II vet. He had a brain aneurysm. Ooh. And he was in the hospital on life support. And uh, one of his twin daughters was driving down, and they were going to stay at my dad's house in a spare bedroom, and we were all going to go at the end of the day when she got down there and go visit John in the hospital. It was a Sunday morning, three weeks of the day, that the universe told me it was time for me to move on, time for me to focus on the business. I reluctantly 
went with universe and ended my relationship in radio and gave up on the radio thing. So I have my podcast because I do them out of my house. So they're mine. And, uh, my stepmom gets up at four in the morning, starts getting the guest bedroom ready. Gets the guest bedroom ready. Missy's on her way down. I think at this point she made it from Indiana to Tennessee. And my dad's, well, let's go take, lay down and take a nap. We'll get back up and Missy gets here and we'll go see John. Yeah. My stepmother, uh, Melody, my parents have been married for 27 years, so she's been my stepmom my whole life. Yeah. She sits down in the recliner. My dad goes, lays down in bed. And she says, I can't breathe. Dad walks in and she passed out. Calls 911. Paramedics come. Luckily, there's a speed trap right outside my dad's house. So the cop is there in no time. He's performing CPR. Paramedics come. They perform CPR for 30 minutes at the house. Now, you with your background, you know that that's not a good thing. Mm-mm. So I got an uncle with a brain aneurysm on life support at one hospital in Lee County. And now my stepmom's on life support at another. And we get to the hospital, and uh, my dad and I are in the emergency room, and they take us to a supply closet. The doctor comes in. Before the doctor comes in, my dad's looking around. He's like, fuck, this isn't good. Nope. If they're taking us out of the waiting room and putting us in a supply closet to have some uh, some privacy, this isn't good news. Long story short, uh, my stepmom had a, a pulmonary embolism in the lung yeah. and essentially drowned while sitting in her recliner waiting to go see my uncle who had a brain aneurysm three weeks from the day that I, I quit working on Stan Haney because two months prior, the universe told me it was time to move on. Sorry. Take to care of the family. Shoot. Uh, 12 days later, John had passed and Nolly passed. Yeah. And so now here we are. Um, business is mine. And so basically I just, Kept on, kept on, man. I was uh, doing the podcast stuff, going at computers. Um, what year, what to, year was uh, that that your mama passed or stepmom passed? Uh, well, it's been, I don't know, maybe two years. Yeah. Uh, no, two and a half years. Yeah, it's been two years since I left Stan here. How's dad doing? So, yeah. It, it was, it was, one, it was hard, but two, it was just insane that, like I said, I just had this overwhelming desire that it was time to focus on the business. And, and after that happened, I realized something, something new that this was going to come down the pipe. Either I was going to, I was going to end up taking care of the business one way or the other under my own voluntary, you know, willingness to leave the station or perhaps three weeks later that was going to happen if I worked at the radio station or not. But, you know, luckily I had already put in the groundwork and uh, had already left on good terms and with a replacement opposed to still working there and then having to leave on a two-day notice because, you know, half of my company just passed away. Right. Because we were a family-owned business since 2004. And it's primarily me, my stepmom did was all the billing, the bookkeeping, the HR and all that. My dad and me were pretty much the guys on the ground. So, so that was, you were able to keep it going after that? I mean, mom yeah, taking care of the books is, is one thing, man. That's huge. Yeah, well, I, I, my dad's semi-retired now. He picks up and uh, he does some work whenever I need it. But basically, at computers, my full-time gig, I do a uh, Waterman and D-Train show on the weekends. I do uh, what's, you know, I try to get a what's the scuttlebutt out every single week, but I realized the content was just too important to rush something out. Right. When you're talking about what we do and the impact on people, you know, I'll, I'll let it go three weeks before I put one out because I want the content to be there. 
No, that's absolutely smart. That's very smart because I, I, like I said, I tried to do another podcast where I'm learning things and I'm, I'm trying to put things out and then you, you'd have to put your time into it to get it out. Right. So you're very smart with the scuttlebutt podcast take your time with it, man. And so how the fail to fail podcast came about is one, um, and you kind of picked up on it and not to sound too narcissistic. I kind of got the idea from looking at my own life. Here's a guy who has no college training with the exception of, you know, some certifications and some computers, uh, have LD learning disability my entire life was told I'm not going to do much with my life. And somehow not only have I been running a business for 14 years, worked in radio for five and a half years, now have uh, three, two successful podcasts. And so I decided that I wanted to do a motivational podcast where I would find people who found success on their own terms. Um, for example, the, the episode you're talking about with Mike, he was a hard partier. He was basically living the Jersey Shore lifestyle. Uh, New Year's Eve, I think in 2010, he got completely shit-faced, beat up in the uh, paramedic, was living five years in prison, found God, and now is out doing missionary work, turned his life around completely. Yep. Um, I interviewed, one. I interviewed my cousin who was adopted, who, um, decided that she wanted to go off to school to learn forestry, got bored of that. Fast forward. Now she's in her thirties. She runs a, uh, a two acre plot of land that, uh, she farms herself and, uh, her produce is so good that she is now basically the key supplier to all these top end, um, high-end restaurants in Cincinnati, Ohio. Excellent. All the major chefs get all their vegetables from her to the point now where she no longer does the farmer market. She's strictly a uh, vendor for all the high-end restaurants. And so, you know, to be a 32-year-old farmer sharecropper, she basically leases land because in northern Kentucky, all the old farmland that we grew up around is all gated communities, golf courses. Um, I, I, I made a referral to Amazon earlier. Um, all the shirts that I print up through Teespring, when they ship out people on the internet, they come out of Northern Kentucky where I grew up. Amazon has a lot of their stuff there. Yep. Um, Emilio Estevez was on a podcast a while back. He loves Cincinnati. He said Cincinnati is like New York in 1969. You can walk around and real estate's affordable and he's producing movies there. The Cincinnati's blowing up because it's right on the main thoroughfare of Interstate 71. And so you have direct uh, um, freeway access and the area's blown up. There's all these internet you know, warehouses and shipping companies and all these jobs. And so that whole area is blowing up. But sadly, and so all the people who are working in Cincinnati, they, they live in northern Kentucky across the river because uh, the land's more conducive to nice neighborhoods. But that means all the farmland's gone. And so my cousin, basically, she's a sharecropper. She rents a two-acre plot of land, pays for it with the money she makes off of produce, but does such a good job that she makes a living and uh, is thought after by all these chefs in Cincinnati. And so I did an interview with her. Excellent. I interviewed Morgan Lewis Wright from American Ninja Warrior, who just happens to be a PE teacher two blocks from my house. Yep. The Morgan one was great. Yep. And, um, and, and the reason I, and the other thing, and, and unintentionally the fail to fail is also getting a little more in my fitness stuff because, um, I find that when you have a general topic podcast, such as the Waterman D train show, when you talk about certain things that are passed for, especially fitness, you know, let's be honest, not everybody cares about fitness, especially if they're not into it. And so people on the Waterman Dietrich show, they really don't give two shits about it. Well, I, so I, I, I think everybody that. wants to be fit, but they don't care about fitness. They want a pill that'll make them yeah. look perfectly. And so I save a lot of the fitness talk. Um, 
um, last week's episode with Andrew McGilvery, she's a physical therapist. We're talking about how she was able to create her own business. Um, and now she's doing Spartan races. Episode before that, my fiance has lupus. If anybody has lupus, they know the hard life that that leads. Not only does she have lupus, but she has fibromyalgia. And she recently got into fitness and lost 40 pounds. And so, and Excellent. her seeing me lose weight and her, because I lost 40 pounds as well. Excellent. But that didn't motivate her because she knew she had lupus. And with lupus, you're always exhausted in pain. And so my fitness didn't have an impact on her. It wasn't until she saw a Facebook post of a colleague of hers who also had lupus who was going Spartan races. And she was like, oh, shit, she can do what I can do. And that's all it took. And so I told her, well, if a single post from a colleague of yours on Facebook can motivate you, maybe you come on fail to fail can motivate other people with lupus. And so we talk about the whole, you know, impact that lupus has on your life. And so, so she's on there and, and I'm constantly, I still trying to book some more people for that. And so, you know, the West of Scuttlebutt, that's where my World War II passions played out. So I don't have to annoy all the people in Warm and Deep Trench with World War II talk. And Fail to Fail is where, um, you know, if you're, well, I'm in Detroit show. We're a comedy show. We're a, you know, a general entertainment, and we're cynical. We we make fun of each other. Oh, for and sure. So, fun. So sometimes in that environment, there's really not much room for motivational, uplifting talk, and so that's where the fail to fail comes in. No, I'm glad that you and, put all these out, man. You're, you're putting out all this content. And it's just, it, it's great to hear you, man. It's and, and it's good to hear the stories that you're presenting and, and the people that you find. Uh, I mean, how, how did you find Morgan and, and uh, I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but how did you find these well, people? Mike was, Mike was the guy I used to party with a little bit. You know, I, no, I didn't party with, he was, he was part of the downtown Fort Myers scene and I knew him from downtown and I knew he went away for a while. I didn't know where he went. And then I heard he went to, to he was working to five years in prison and then when he got out, he would uh, show up to Dollar Bowl night with us. Mm. And then I would see him on Facebook, uh, traveling around the country, going missionary work. And so I send him a message saying, hey, man, why don't you come on and share your story with people? You know, you're a guy who, you know, you're partying, beat up a paramedic because you're all hopped up on drugs. You're looking at five years in prison. Luckily, you had a judge who saw something in you and you didn't waste that because, you know, the retention of prison is huge. Most people get who end up in jail on that sort of thing tend to go back, but he, you know, he, he found his calling and that's what he does. And, you know, he, he backslides a little bit, but uh, he's still doing his thing. He, he still doesn't do that lifestyle anymore. And he's still doing missionary work. And I just thought he had a great story. I'm by no means a super religious person, but um, that doesn't mean that I can't see a good story and an uplifting motivated story when I, when I hear one. No, absolutely. And, and you're, you're talking about the recidivness of prisons and how they like to keep you. Uh, that's another podcast that I, I was talking to a, a gentleman a couple of, uh, well, a couple of days ago and he no, was, I heard it. oh my goodness, you know, yeah, he, he's got more he of a story, you know, prison reform. It, it needs to be, yeah. it, it, he it's, it's definitely needed. It, it's all corporate. It's greed. It's people that want to just keep you down, keep you in forever and ever. <laughs> Well, and the sad thing is, is if you're like somebody like Mike who gets drunk and blacks out and you hit a paramedic and you get five years in prison, you're going to learn a lot more in prison that's going to lead to a worse lifestyle once you get on parole that's probably going to lead you back to going back to prison right. than you would have if you would have gotten probation and sent to, uh, you know, rehab and things like that. So there's a lot of people who end up on a, you know, a 
nonviolent drug offensive charge and end up going to prison where they have to fight and end up doing worse things in prison. So when they get out, now they're stuck in that lifestyle, and it's just it's just a not never ending loop. Man, and I, I'm glad you're getting their stories out too, man, because they they are going to help somebody. Somebody somewhere sometime is going to listen down the line and go, "Ooh, let me not do that." Or let me do this, and it'll prevent me from doing that. You know, you're you're, you're helping people, and that's well. And one of the cool things I said earlier about the uh, World War II stuff, yeah. and the cool stuff that led me to is uh, that's a tight knit community. And the word came down about two years ago that Amazon, uh, Amazon or Netflix was shooting a show in Miami called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Heard they were about looking it. for some. They were looking for some extras who could show up in 1950s apparel. And, well, I do 1940s, so it's not a leap too far. Well, you have to sign up for this casting agency. Well, I signed up for never heard anything about it. And then about six months ago, I was minding my own business. And I get a uh, casting request to do a show that's currently being produced in Orlando. And I don't want to give the name of it yet. It's slated to, to uh, go out on um, Disney Plus next year, as well as the Smithsonian Network. Excellent. And uh, I mean, I could give the name out, but they say no social media posts and this and that. No, don't, Anyhow, don't do it, man. Getting, don't get yourself in trouble. I ended up getting booked for two episodes um, as a background actor. Cool. And uh, part of the reason I got booked is um, this is a time peace period, and it has to do with the military. And because of all my photos on the casting sites of me in my World War II gear, um, the first episode I was cast as a naval officer. And I'm like right over the shoulder of the, the uh, lead actors. And so I'm going to have some screen time on the pilot. Cool. And then I went back to episode four or five. I can't remember which one, which takes place on New Year's Eve. And I'm like, it took two days to shoot that one, but it's a single episode. And I uh, did a lot of crossover and background work on that. They just wrapped season one. But <clears throat> interesting enough, when I was shooting the pilot, the director came down. And um, I know he directed a few episodes of uh, Game of Thrones. That's how big of a production this is. Cool. And uh, he was talking to me. He's like, are you in the military? I'm like, no, I'm a World War II reenactor. So I do. Well, you know, I'm used to wearing uniforms and playing the role. He's like, well, what's that? So I get in the talk about World War II reenacting. He's like, no, I was familiar with Civil War reenacting. I didn't know they do World War II. I like you. I'm going to have you back around. So hopefully season two, I'll show up again. <laughs> so um, now I'm back doing some background work. Um, I've been trying to get my YouTube channel up off the ground. And I'm just trying to uh, get the brand out there and just build something, you know, not to get rich, but just to, uh, you know, I've always been an artist. I drew a lot as a kid, um, took eight semesters of photography in high school. There is a waste of time. I can develop black and white film, even though it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> eight yeah, semesters I've done that. Of and, uh, and so the podcasting, it allows me to produce and uh, be art artistic and just, get my passion out there and, and, uh, allows me to provide content for people. And, and as like, you know, I don't know if you listen to my more recent episodes, you'll hear, I have a sign off where I say, you know, um, whatever the last hour and a half, hopefully you heard something that's uh, motivating, something that's uplifting, or at least made you laugh because life is uh, short. Life is hard and uh, go out and, uh, try to find a way to benefit your community, your life and your family, because one day you may wake up dead. And I got that because my stepmom woke up dead. I mean, that's ever since she passed away, that's when I started doing that sign off. And, and I truly believe that it's, uh, life is short and life is hard, but, um, you gotta, you gotta figure out a way to take advantage of opportunity when it comes. 
and you got to have a motor, you got to grind. And, you know, I've been doing this podcast thing for getting ready, you know, two years, I think, um, two years. And, uh, you know, early on, I didn't make any money. I'm still not making any money per se. I'm, it, it's paying for itself now, thanks to Patreon and my Amazon links and all that. Right. But um, I don't do this because I'm, I have any delusions of grandeur of getting rich or anything like that. I do it because, one, I feel like I'm providing content for people. And two, it, it, it does something for me. Um, actually, a um, little insight for you. If you guys go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, you'll see a banner. It's my WTSP logo. And underneath it, you'll see where it says US 010718. Uh, I see that. It may sound like a, I'm looking it at it right like, now. It may sound like just a bunch of random letters and numbers, but that's actually the date of the first episode. So, uh, Let's Let's Go But went on the air on January 7th, 2018. So that's how long we've been doing the podcast. So that's a little, that's what that number actually means. That's the date of the first episode. And uh, that's when Waterman D. Train Show started as well. And so, uh, yep, we're going to go in our second year here, coming up in January. D-Train, my man. Well, I mean, you helped me through my work day today, and you will uh, for the next, uh, I guess, the next couple of weeks. I, I got to get through your, I don't know, probably uh, almost 200 episodes uh, in your various podcasts. Uh, yeah, we got 50, uh, 58 of WTSP, I think 87 of Warman D-Train Show, 8 of fail to fail and if you're a patreon user because i don't have enough on my schedule between that and my uh youtube channel that i try to get at least two videos up a week <laughs> my brother and i have a paywall podcast for patreon listeners going back to 2003 when we launched d-410.com i had what was called a forum that's where people can go and express likenesses and all that it was called what's in your head.com which is now defunct Right. But for our Patreon members, we did launch my fourth podcast called What's in Your Head, where it's me and my brother, and we do hour-long podcasts that we upload to Patreon. We only got one up right now. We just did like two weeks ago. Just a little extra for our Patreon members to give them a little, some exclusivity, a little thank you for your support. Um, one of the other things I do for like my top tier, what's my top tier, like seven fifty a month. After month two, I'll give them a free T-shirt, but now they have access to... Um, their very own podcast and I'll put exclusive videos up there and said, now technically I have four podcasts that I'm working on. <laughs> well, that'll keep you busy. And hopefully you do make a couple bucks off of that here and there. I mean, yeah. Okay. And now does act computers, does it have a, a brick and mortar or is that something you do mobily? No, act computers. We do have a brick and mortar store. It's, it's well, it's a, it's a business unit. I actually, when we first started in 04, we had a storefront, but let's be honest. Uh, CompuSA went out of business. Circuit City went out of business. The brick and mortar stuff doesn't work. For sure, that's why. That's why I'm asking. Uh, I mean, how does that run? In 08, we re uh, did our business. We don't advertise and don't look for residential work. I'll do it. I don't turn it away. But I primarily do small businesses because uh, computers have gotten cheap. Uh, when I started this business in 04, you know, computer was six, seven hundred dollars. Now they're two hundred and fifty bucks. Yep. So I can't go to your house and charge you by the hour and charge you more than what your computer's worth. But when it comes to the businesses, the money's in the configuration. And so, you know, yes, a business owner can go out and buy a $130 computer or replace the one that crashed, but then he's got to pay somebody to come out there for six hours and we configure everything. And so the labor cost gets more than the, what the computer costs. And so it's more cost effective for them to get maintenance programs where we come out, and, you know, maintain their computers and we let them know when failure is coming so that they can budget for it and plan for it. So it's not out of the blue 
And so we primarily do um, businesses. And so since I'm at other people's locations all day, I just got a single unit room that with my workbenches that I can do my event work on that the, the people can come out and not have to stand in my living room. So I do have a store on Del Prado and Cape Coral, but that's act-capecoral.com. It's uh, 239-283-1120. And as I say on our podcast, because Act Computers is the primary sponsor, just because you live, don't live in Southwest Florida doesn't mean we can't help. Because as I said earlier, we can remote into your computer. So as long as your internet works, we can help you with your computer needs. Well, there you go. So that allows <laughs> to do computers all over the, the world, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this internet thing is great. I, I've talked to musicians that have never even met each other, but they've made full albums together <laughs> through the internet. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Well, and just like with the Waterman D train show, um, part of the reason my brother came on is I wanted to, to create more of a show instead of just two assholes sitting in a room talking. I wanted more of that radio show format. And I also needed somebody to talk to when Dave didn't show up. And so my brother, you know, we just bring him in via Skype. Yeah. from Las Vegas right? and right now I'm talking to you through a free phone app that's on my computer that's piped into my mixing board and I'm talking to you in my studio right now and so because of the internet I'm able to talk to you across the country and uh, we're all able to do things that we couldn't have done 20 years ago that is absolutely correct man I talk to people on Skype all over the world and I'm so glad to be talking to you Don Abernathy the D train I mean well, I appreciate it and I hope hopefully I answered some questions and uh, provided did. some people with and, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with Digital 410 is um, because of my web hosting background is it's my future goal really is to provide a network for up and coming podcasters, people who don't have the money for web hosting and all that, because with the web host package I have, it truly does not cost me to add extra websites and, and podcasts. And so all these podcasts, my website, Stan Haney, it's all off one single web host account I've had since 2002 and the price hasn't gone up and 18 years and so it really doesn't cost me anything to host additional podcasts and so my goal was to you know and i still look for some people that you know hey if you're wanting to get in this podcasting and don't know where to host it that's one of the things digital 410 is for is i'm trying to build a podcasting network it's not all just about getting me out there it's just i provide a lot of podcasts just to have content to be quite honest well, yeah, that's why I work with other DJs. I mean, because sometimes I'll do the same show every week. I have a, a regular Friday show every Friday night. But as good as I think I am, I, people are going to get bored of me. So I have other DJs that I can rotate in. And you're going to have other shows on your d410.com uh, 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 website that uh, yeah, people can, can tune into. And, and tell tell people how, how to uh, get a hold of you. How do you want them to connect to you? They already know the d-410.com, and I'll definitely put that in the show notes so people know yeah. where to go. And that's the easiest way to find it for people who aren't podcast savvy. But for the rest of the people, if you're listening to this, you're podcast savvy. You can find my podcast. We're all fine podcasts available. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Music. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Basically, anywhere but Pandora. I don't know if you look in the Pandora podcast requirements, but you got to fill out like a 17-page manifesto, and I just wasn't interested in that. I did that on iHeartRadio, and they put up most of my podcast up to that time, and then they haven't, yeah. they haven't added any of the newer ones. So I have to keep yeah. re-upping? Come on. <laughs> uh, do you like some... Uh, What's the Scuba and uh, Warman Dietrich show are available on all of them, but for some reason, I think Fail to Fail is only on... Uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, Stitcher and um, iHeartRadio. For some reason, Google Music just won't 
won't pick it up for some reason, but I don't know if there's not enough episodes or what. But anyhow, yeah, just uh, go to d-410.com. You can find my YouTube channel on there. I've been really focusing on that, um, trying to get that up off the ground, providing some video content. I'm trying to get Gordon to pro- provide some video content, trying to provide Dave. You know, once again, I'm not trying to build a YouTube channel to get my ugly face out there. I'm just trying to provide content. Right now, I'm the only one providing it, but Gordon's working on some stuff. I'm trying to get Dave to work on some stuff. But, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to get content out there, and hopefully that we're entertaining somebody. And who knows, maybe in the next five years, I'll finally pull the trigger. One of the things I've been teasing myself about doing for years is um, open mic night. I've been watching comedians since back when Comedy Central was the comedy network and it was 24 hours of stand-up comedians. And just uh, that's the one thing I haven't had the uh, intestinal fortitude yet to do is get up on open mic night. Do it, man. Do it. Get five minutes together and go. I encourage you, man. Try, fail, try, fail. Try a hundred times. And then uh, if you still can't do it after a hundred, find something else to do. (laughs) But, uh, man, uh, yes. We got all the Facebook pages. You can find me D train on Facebook, um, on Instagram. I think Instagram, I changed it up a little bit. It's, I think it's actually Donovan 410 or D train 410 on Instagram. And I think look for Donovan 410 on Twitter. And, um, that's the one thing I'm bad about. All my different social medias have different handles, but you can find all that through D hyphen or D dash. If you know what the hyphen is, that's the dash next to the zero on your keyboard. <laughs> um, but yeah, just get a D hyphen 410.com and you'll see links to everything. And, uh, my uh oh back to the fitness real quick oh hit me you know i i was going to the gym and all that and one of the things i've always wanted to do especially with my world war ii background is i've always wanted to do an obstacle course race and i always thought those things look so cool but my fiance is like well you don't run fool <laughs> and, like, and i would you know i would do like 20 minutes on the treadmill before i lift weights for 45 minutes and um like i said i've always been going to the gym because when I moved to California, I weighed a buck seventy-five, so I started going to the gym, put on weight, so I didn't look like a heroin addict. But then, as I moved down here, I'm working on computers. I get an Xbox. I spend eight hours a day. My fiance has an Xbox, so we're spending all our free time eating Taco Bell, and we both pack on all this weight. And I'm going to the gym. My diet still sucks. But then I had those kidney stones we talked about, and I stopped drinking the soda, and the weight started falling off. And I was still going to the gym, and I was I was dropping weight pretty good. But then one day I blew up my elbow, oh. so I wasn't able to lift weights. And like, shit and i want to gain my weight back and uh so i started running outside and that was game changer i yeah. never liked running if you had told me 10 years ago i'd be running all the time i'd tell you you're insane running sucks yeah that's how i got in the <laughs> fire department man stomping around running miles and miles and miles and until as i you, dropped away and as you know as you know from running it sucks but i i don't run for the feeling i get when i'm running i run for the feeling i get when i'm done <laughs> and the accomplishment in this case it is the destination not the journey because <laughs> yep. usually it and is at, the journey and at 41 i realized i'm not gonna run any faster but i can run longer distance and so i've been running for about two years i think in october i ran 100 miles in one month get it and um about three weeks ago i finally accomplished my goal i ran my first savage race seven miles 28 obstacles completed 25 of them the last four were all pretty much monkey bars and grip and strength and i just i was too wiped out um i did the i did that in like an hour and 48 minutes uh, two weeks part of that i finished my first 10k i'm looking at the board here i think i did the 10k in 50 minutes which was great yeah. um but on thanksgiving i set my new personal record i finished a 5k in 25 minutes and 12 seconds which is super fast yeah 
Hey, spoiler and, uh, alert, I, I'm looking at your Instagram right now, and I see you and your best girl, and you're holding a, a medal, man. You did it. Yeah, we actually went and ran uh, four miles tonight before I came on your podcast because I'm trying to help her get her her goals. You know, I used to run the run group, but it take me out and force me to run 12 miles. And so with her lupus and all that, and the fact she's lost 40 pounds now, she ran her first, second 5K and, and got a personal best, and we're running one here in two weeks. And so, uh, yeah, it's just we run, and the weight's falling off, and now it's just, I'm hoping to do another savage race in March. And so now I know I need to work out my, my grip and uh, start working on my pull-ups, which I'm terrible at. I think I can do three of them, but uh, it's all about short-term goals. If, even if you're not into fitness, if you're not into anything, if any advice I can give to your listeners who are, whether you're stuck in a rut or in a dead end job, first and foremost, um, I, and I tried telling this to Dave so many times, um, being rich is hard. It's hard to get rich, but it's super easy not to be destitute. Um, you can go out and get a job, uh, you know, medium, you know, a minimum wage job, work 40 hours a week, and you'll you'll come up enough income to at least, you know, get an apartment and a, an old beater car. You won't be rich, you won't be middle class, but you won't be flat busted broke, you know, begging people for money. And and you know, because I I trust me, growing up in Kentucky and Ohio, I I come from long, you know, long story short, as a kid, I was on food stamps and all that stuff. So I, I came from that background, and I realized that it takes a minimum amount of work not to be destitute. I'm not saying you're gonna be rich or even middle class, but a minimal amount of work not to be fucking broke. You'll, you'll have some money and, you know, at least for, for food and a, an apartment. Right. Um, but not only that, but uh, you got to have a motor and you can't be afraid to work. And um, you can't be afraid to work for free. But back to the job. If, you, if you're listening to this podcast and you've got a job you hate, don't get up and quit. That's the dumbest thing you can do. I don't know what it is, but jobs are like girlfriends. You ever notice back in high school when you were single, you couldn't find a chick? <laughs> but whenever you had a girlfriend, all these other girls would like be like open to talking to you? Right. I don't know if it's because you're not coming off desperate. I don't know if maybe they think, well, if he's good enough for her, he's good enough for me. Well, employment's the same way. If you have a job you hate and you go out job hunting, you're more than likely to land a new job because, one, when you go in for your interview, um, the employer or expected employer is going to see that you already have a work history. And then when you tell them, when they say, well, when can you start working? You say two weeks from now. And then they say, well, okay, this guy's professional. He's going to put in two weeks at his other job. So at least we know he's reliable. And when you're sitting down for that interview, you don't come off being desperate for a job. Right. And so if, if you're working a dead-end job that you don't like, just start looking for a new one as you continue to work that job and just work your way into something else. And if you have a passion, something that you're good at, that you really want to chase, you just got to find, you know, I, one of the things that shocks me is when I hear people say I don't have time to do something. It's like, really? Well, how bad do you want it? Because once again, I was working at, uh, at computers, working at the radio, going home, still finding time to go to the gym for an hour a night, plus finding, you know, three hours a week to do podcasts. It's just, it's how bad you want it. And just, you know, you just got to chase your dreams and do what you, you need to do and just figure out, uh, you know, what it's going to take. And just, you know, if you have to work someplace for free while you're working in another place for, you know, money, do that until the place you're working at for free realizes how good you are and they'll bring you on. It's just don't be afraid to work hard. You know, I think one of the things that the younger generation suffer from right now is they don't want to work. And um, that's just, you're not going to get anywhere that way. Oh, yeah, the entitlements. Yeah. Opportunity will, uh, will present its head, but it will not track you down. 
and it will not convince you to come along for the ride. You got to work. You got to put in the, the energy and the time and you have to have the ability to find that opportunity and do what it takes to take advantage of it. And, uh, just don't be afraid to grind. And one thing I told Dave one time, I said, Hey man, especially when it comes to radio, you know, you're, we're talking about working for free. You know, we've all heard the phrase grind. Yeah. Um, I came up with another saying, you have to scrape before you can grind. <laughs> you know, if you're filing away at something, it starts with little tiny scrape marks before you're actually grinding with that grinder. Twice the same way. You, you have to scrape before you grind. You, you know, I was flat busted. You know, I graduated high school. My dad moved across country. I became a father at 17. So now I'm a 17 year old father living on the west side of Columbus, broke as hell. Oh. Um, you know, living in a band house, didn't have, barely had a pop to piss and relied on girlfriends and friends to bring food over. I spent, I, I was flat busted broke. I didn't have, I didn't purchase my first brand new car until I was 37 years old, working two jobs. Wasn't until I was working at computers and, and the radio station that I could actually afford a, a $32,000 car. So, you know, I've spent a majority of my life flat busted broke, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a passage. Most kids in their 20s, early 30s, you know, unless you're born in the money, you're not just going to graduate high school or college and just, you know, yeah, maybe if you went to school, be a lawyer or a doctor, you're not just going to land some money-making job. You, you actually have to put in that time and live that, that hard life for a while. And the thing that comes from living that hard life is once you get to that point where you're making 30 grand a year, 40 grand a year, which to some people is a lot of money, but to me, that's a hell of a life. Yeah. I mean, I'm bringing 30 grand a year. To, I'm, I feel like I'm living high on the hall because of the, the background I came up with. But well, once you, you start making You live that, simply, that, you know. Well, not only that, but you appreciate everything. Yes. Everything I have, I've worked for. I've earned. No one's given me a goddamn thing. And you start to appreciate it. Whereas if if people give you things and, and you know, oh, uh, I don't, uh, I you know, I don't know. I, I'm kind of going in the weeds here, but. Uh, for example, I, I just see these people who, you know, you hear these stories, oh, people working at, you know, fast food restaurants want $15 an hour. They want a livable wage. Fast food wasn't meant to be a, a career. No, it's not, man. It's supposed to be the stupid job you get when you're in high school. You know, my first exactly. job was washing dishes at a Mexican restaurant, uh, you know, and I was working till two in the morning, getting up at 5 a.m. to go to high school. That only lasted two weeks, I'll tell you. <laughs> you know, that's really, I wasn't supposed to be working till two in the AM at, in the AM at 16 years old, but, uh, but I did it because I needed a job and I wanted some money and I wanted to, to work hard for it. And that's what my parents made me do. And that's what the, you should do. Yeah, they're called entry level jobs, not cornerstone, not careers. Unless you're the manager or the franchise right. owner, right? Not to say do. that the McManager or the you know the KFC manager is is not a bad job, man. That could be a career well, for you. Oh, and uh, by no means. I mean, I worked at Wendy's for three years in high school. I worked at Little Caesars. I worked at Pizza Hut. I've sold women's swimwear. I fertilized lawns. Like I said, I've done telemarketing. I've done tech support. And and I tell people, you know, you may think that. And just a quick story before we wrap up. Well, next time um, you say that, say you worked in women's swimwear. Well, that's well, you know, that's not a glamorous job because uh, that means you got to clean up the dressing rooms, and it's a it's a freaking nightmare. <laughs> but I remember, I remember about ten years ago when my uh, fiance's brother was thirteen. Yeah, and he's like fifteen or sixteen. He was complaining about not having any money. And we're like, go, go get a job. I'm not going to work at Burger King, man. That's a lame job. Why it pays, right? 
Yeah, but what am I going to learn from that? I'll tell you exactly what you're going to learn because I did it for three years. But when did one, uh, you're going to learn how to clean up after yourself and other people. Yep. Two, you're going to learn obligation, commitment, and uh, work ethic. And tell you what, when your job is to clean the restrooms every night after a thousand people has used them, when you go home to your apartment and you got to clean on Saturday, it's not that bad. When you got to clean up that dirty ass stove that's cooked over three thousand hamburgers that day, when you got to wipe down your stove after making dinner for your family, it's not that bad. So yes, it may not be high pay. It may not be glamorous, but you learn the, the experience you get from that. I tell people, work as many different jobs as you can because you take something away from every single one of them that will come to benefit you in your life. And because all the different work, jobs that I work, every one of those has come to help me run two businesses. I have at computers and I have digital for pen productions. I have two business licenses in my name. And if I wouldn't have worked all those many different horrible jobs, I wouldn't have learned customer service. At work ethic, obligation, and and managing a business. Man, so you were don't destined. Think you were destined to be working in this, man. Your, your dad, the electronic engineer. You were destined yeah. to be working with electronics, man. And so that's what we do. You just got to grind, man. Don't be afraid to work. Chase your dreams. It's you know I look back and it, it blows my mind to think that since two thousand four with the exception of the five years I worked in radio, which like I said, uh, that wasn't paying the bills. That was just a passion project. Right. But since, since 2004, I've made a living off of putting my name in a phone book and on the internet yeah. using my skills and my work ethic. And I mean, that's, that's basically what it's all about. If you can do that, even if you're still, you know, lower middle class, what more do you want? Yeah. Don't you discount that, that, that radio job. Cause that's part of what got you here. This is oh, absolutely, and, and I'm not. But what I'm yeah. what I'm saying financially, I wasn't right. You know, I don't. As you said, the the benefits to working in the radio is one, the skills and, and the fan base. But financially, it's the free concert tickets and <laughs> you know and, and things like that. And so, well, and that's what got I'm you not, to this podcast thing, man. And this is what's going to take you probably to the end until they put you in that box or wherever you want to be. Yeah, ho- hopefully uh, the podcast thing will take off and, um, you know, hopefully for too long, uh, you know, I'll get some other people in the network and they can uh, share their passions and, you know, we can get some advertisers and we can all get a little coin in our pocket and uh, put yeah. some content out there to compete with the other 238,000 podcasts <laughs> in the internet. 38,000. I think it's 100,000. Really. It's, it's, it's up there, man. No, I was I was going through your catalog and I was in like five episodes the last few days. How many episodes do you have out of this of this podcast? Uh, one thirty or so, uh, one thirty something. How many people do you know in your private in your private life who who started podcasts and quit after about episode three? Yeah, yeah, quite a few, quite a few. I mean, e- even there's. I guess I was listening to Trader Joe's and they put them out like every cup every few months, you know. <laughs> well, I've known four or five people who said, I'm going to start doing a podcast. Well, that's great. And they'll put out three episodes and they quit because putting out the podcast isn't the hard part. It's going consistently and consistently coming up with fresh content. That's the hard part. And so, yes, there are hundreds and thousands of podcasts out on the Internet, but I think a lot of them die after episode 10 or before episode 10. So many of them fail early because people don't they don't think how – um, time consuming it is to do it consistently. 
And so, um, by the same token, if you have a passion for something and you have an idea and you have the, the inkling to create, put it out there. Even if it is only three, even if it is only 10, put it out there, man. You know, it could help somebody. Absolutely. And, you know, even if you only got, you know, even if I only had four people listen to my podcast, (laughs) I um, I know you got to five OGs, man. Yeah, my, my OG5. OG5, uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I coined that early on. Um, Dave and I were talking at the time, the uh, the station when I was hosting them on their on their platform early on, they didn't the host they had didn't have a, a way to track how many downloads you had. So I was sharing with Dave, I was like, we got like five listeners. So, you know, we're going up for the OG5. And so when I say OG5, I'm referring to the five listeners we have. But, you know, and even if that was the case, even if we had five listeners, the fact that they download those five people download it every week, the fact that they, uh, they listen and they enjoy your content. Even if you only have five listeners, fuck it, do it for those five. <laughs> I'm here for you, Jeff. Just you, Jeff. Uh, you know, <laughs> whoever that up, is. <laughs> here's a crazy story. When I went out to Fredericksburg, Texas, I showed up on site and Jeff introduced me to one of his volunteers. Guy came up to me and said, Hey, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I grew up in your town, and I went to your same high school. Come on. And he was my daughter's age. And so he was actually in elementary school with my daughter, and we went to the same high school, but he ended up going to a different high school later on. And uh, two years ago, I was um, in Alabama doing a World War II reenactment. It was the 75th anniversary of Tarawak, and I was – I got assigned to head up the heavy weapons group. The National Museum of World War II in Louisiana sent down an artillery piece and some of their reenactors. And we're walking along, and um, this guy named Brandon Deschatel, he looked at his other guys, and uh, he said, uh, recognize his voice? And the other was like, oh, yeah, and like, well, that's the guy's podcast. And so whenever I hear... I. I guess I'm getting at I just assume that when I put these podcasts out, no one's listening. And so when it does come up, like in conversation, yeah. it just blows my mind. Wow, people do listen. And so it, it, it blows my mind when when somebody comes up to me and brings it up. Because whenever I go out to these events, I don't sit there and beat people over the head with my podcast stuff. But when, when people bring it up, it just blows my mind. Like, oh, shit, people do listen. D-Train, next time that happens, I want you to big time them. Pull out a Sharpie and say, what do you want me to sign, kid? Uh, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> it was a topical smoothie one time uh, with my kid, and um guy leaning up the window, he's like, are you you're D-Train? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, man, big fan. And, you know, I still have people from my five and a half years on the radio. I'll be walking through Publix Grocery or that, and Stan Haney fans will still recognize me. Then, you know, it happens once every few months. I'll be walking down and just hear somebody all D-Train, and whether they're Stan Haney fans or the podcast fans, it still blows my mind that it's like, oh, wow, I guess, you know, People do, you know, at least in this town, do know me. It just, it's crazy to me. It's funny. I'm sitting here doing this interview with you, and I and I got the producers of uh, Walking Point sending me text about that event coming up next year. Love it, man. Love it. Hope this gets you some more traction there, Mr. D-Train. And, uh, yes, I worked at Publix, Weston, Florida, 1988. Yeah, baby. There you go. <laughs> the big green monster. Well, I'll definitely... Uh, I'll definitely share your link on my uh, D-Train page as well, and uh, we'll, we'll send some listeners your way. All right, my brother. Well, that's... Uh, well, I, I, 
broad questions and not put your audience to sleep. And I uh, appreciate your time, man. Oh, man, let's wrap this up. Uh, any last words for the people? And I'll definitely put all the links that, at least all the ones that I've connected to, and I'll find whatever Twitters you have. I'll put them on the show notes. Any last words for the people? Mr. D-Train, Don Apernathy. Yeah, in the last 248 minutes, hopefully we said something that's motivating, entertaining, and made you smile and laugh because life is short, life is hard. Do what you got to do to uh, help your community, help your family, make yourself a better life because one day you may wake up dead. Well, there you have it, party people. Don Abernathy, the D-Train. I knew it was going to be good. This man had a story, and he's destined to work with electronics, man. It's in the blood. You know, I talk to musicians, uh, you know, and usually it's either one or more of their parents or even grandparents were musicians. And here, his dad's an electronics engineer. Uh, You know, he's destined to work in the electronic field of some kind, working with wires, working with microphones, working with computers. Yeah, he's... (laughs) And it was so good talking to him. Don Abernathy, the D train. If you haven't checked him out yet, you know, and you like this podcast, you're going to like that podcast too. I encourage you to check it out. There's several. I mean, the fail to fail, very inspirational, very inspirational. The Waterman and D train, funny. It's like listening to a, a morning show, you know, like all day long while you're working out, while you're, uh, you know, while you're driving around while you're driving to your destination take a listen and then his uh scuttlebutt i can't speak first firsthand just yet but i do have it loaded into my podcast app uh, i use podcast addict you know they're not a sponsor of the show but it's just the one that i i like to use and uh whenever i find a new podcast i uh always put the the rss feed into the podcast attic you know always try to help people out make sure that they they spread the love so uh find the d train online everywhere yeah all right party people that's it for this edition of what makes you famous if you have a story to tell and yeah you have a story to tell everybody does Come on, tell your story on my podcast, What Makes You Famous. Give me a call at 501-470-6386 or email info at radiowhat.com. That's it for me. It's Keys Dan, radiowhat.com, djlittlerock.com. Peace. I'm out of here. Radio What, the music you want with some great Great quotes. What is not started today is never finished tomorrow. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. The music you want. RadioWhat.com. If you like what you hear, follow What Makes You Famous social media. Use the hashtag What Makes You Famous. Follow on Facebook at What Makes You Famous. Follow on Instagram at What Makes You Famous. Follow on Twitter at Makes Famous. And follow on YouTube at Keys Dan. Leave What Makes You Famous podcast a review and subscribe. Listen to What Makes You Famous podcast on Podbean, iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and almost anywhere you find podcasts. Tell your story on my podcast, What Makes You Famous. Call 501-470-6386 and leave a message to set up a time. You can support What Makes You Famous using the PayPal link, paypal.me forward slash keysdan. Email 
info at radiowhat.com. What Makes You Famous podcast is a production of Keys Dan Enterprises Incorporated at keysdan.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, Keys Dan. What you doing? My line. I'm playing the best music by request. 24 hours a day. Click on the request tab at the top of radiowhat.com. Radiowhat.com. Radio what? Dot com.